You're listening to Beyond the Melody, a podcast that dives into the midst of musicians, artists, comedians, writers, and pretty much anyone who craves to be creative. My name is Brian Mello, and I'm a singer-songwriter from Hamilton, Ontario. I know how unforgiving an artist's journey can be, but I also know that inspiration can come from just about anywhere. I'm sitting down with people who know how to dream big. Let's explore their impact and how it's even bigger. Hey guys, welcome to Beyond the Melody. On today's podcast, we have a very special guest, a humanitarian, a businessman, and a best-selling author who has a story that you would think came straight out of a movie. And he will be having a new book coming out very soon called Stateless, The Story Behind the Story. I'm talking about my friend, Vaden Earl. Vaden, what's up, brother? Well, all kinds of stuff. Good to be here. <laughs> I know, man. Nice to see you, man. And, yeah, for sure. Uh, just to let, let the audience know about our connection and how you and I connected, uh, you were part of a nonprof uh, some years ago that I worked with, and I was lucky enough to go to like 70 different schools around mm-hmm. the country to, to, um, to perform and, and, uh, and talk about the cause. And through that, uh, you and I met through Skype because you were, as we'll get into yeah. the weeds here with your story, you were in Dominican with, uh, with your daughter. Um, and, and that was that you and I met very quickly and very brief. And then we reconnected, uh, a few months ago <laughs> yeah. and you kind of brought me up to speed about what's been going on in your life and shit, man, a lot has been going on in your, in your life, right? Miss a decade, miss a lot. You miss a lot, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I want you to actually take me back to the beginning um, before we get into, you know, some of the things that happened these past several years. Uh, just just to talk to me about your humanitarian work and really how it started and what was the inspiration for you to get in there and start making a difference? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's a long time ago. You can make me feel old for a minute. Here. <laughs> I was uh, running a youth program in Saskatchewan. Okay. I bet you didn't know that part about my story, did you? No, no? I didn't know you, see, you, you did research, but you didn't go, you didn't deep dive enough. <laughs> so I was uh, in Saskatchewan running a youth program. And one of the things that we decided to do was do a, a, a trip, an international trip. And uh, we went to St. Lucia. And, you know, St. Lucia, Caribbean country, it's safe, it's good. Take a bunch of teenagers. They were young, 12 to 14 year olds sort of thing. We're going to run like a... A, a drop-in program for for kids, street kids. Nothing to it. Two weeks in, out, just expose them to another culture. And we were on our way to the the venue for the the day program. We got bad directions from good people, I'm sure, or just maybe we didn't get the lingo or the dialect or something. Zig when we should have zagged and ended up in this slum in in the capital city, Castries, St. Lucia. And it's not like St. Lucia isn't in, in, in the 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 scale of the most poor countries in the world by any means but yeah. we hit a slum that was nothing like i'd ever seen in my life you know i could reach out one hand and touch someone's front door and the other hand touch the other guy's front door wow. and i real i looked down and i got like an eight thousand dollar camera hanger on my neck right <laughs> and i'm looking and going it hit me so something something then just moved me and i realized that i if i sold this camera today i could probably build at least three families new homes that are better than they were living in Mind you, this is a long time ago. This is 96. Um, And then a couple years later, we did a similar trip, a similar style thing, but we did it in Thailand. And um, we went to the border. Uh, I I do crazy stuff when I'm in other countries. I don't know why. I I just, I've never 
been like, uh, I never used a travel agent or, you know, I've never kind of done it right. So flew into Bangkok, rented a car and thought, thought, what a great idea. Let me just freaking drive in Bangkok because that's not like a great idea. Hey, got the car, may as well drive to Cambodia, right? A fucking bad idea. So anyway, I drive to Cambodia. I had a car accident. Uh, Can't read Thai at all. So road signs meant nothing. But through the whole thing, got a car accident, a minor accident, um, ended up at the border. And you've probably seen these livestock trucks that go by, like, you know, they got sheep or when they got the little holes in the side, like the Muppet intro to the Muppet show, right? Like everyone's singing. That's what it looks like. And every sheep sheep are sticking their heads out and cows and stuff. So we see a truck pull up to the border crossing and I'm like looking at it and it looked just, just, I I lived in Saskatchewan. I've seen plenty of these livestock trucks and I roll up and I could hear what did not sound like cows or sheep. So I pull the, the tarp back. I look in and it's filled with kids, children. I mean, I'm talking like, I'm not talking about 12 year olds. I'm talking about six and five and seven and eight year olds. And I'm like, the hell is going on here? So I, I, I go back to my translator and I, I talk to some of the people, the locals I've been working with. These kids have been trafficked from Cambodia. We just, I mean, we could have been shot for looking in the truck. Um, but we look and apparently we just hit the right day, the right truck or whatever. And we looked and, and these guys are on their way to a brothel in the north of Thailand. And I'm like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. So spent three weeks there. Uh, really, it just fucked me up. I mean, I was done. Mentally, emotionally, everything was just a uh, clean slate, gone. And I got on a, a plane to come back on, I remember Thai Airways and I, I you know, a little square napkin they give you. And I grabbed the pen and a little square napkin. I wrote out what became the... Um, the, the if you will a business plan for what later became Hero Holiday where we started taking these kids um, because I realized that in North America I hate the term privilege because of what people have done with the term but we are so privileged in we we won the birth lottery as I like to put it you know we were born here we won the birth lottery we didn't do anything to make us better than someone born in Cambodia yeah we were just born here we're lucky so. Uh, I realized coming back that if we can do anything for society in North America is expose young kids, teenagers to something else in the world, something that's not fighting for, uh, you know, standing in line on Black Friday for the latest game system or TV or some stupid shit and trampling people or stabbing them over, you know, a PlayStation or, you know, we hear all the stories, Crazy, you know, yeah. and then, uh, so I thought, let's, let's do something where we can take kids from here and bring them to other countries to experience something. So we, we birthed this program. And since then, uh, I, I, I lost track of the numbers because I resigned 10 years after that. After starting, I resigned. But I, we were into that maybe 10,000 kids we took to developing countries. Um, yeah, and- it's, it's, it's unbelievable, man. And that's a, that's a fucking crazy story, man. I mean, I, I could imagine how that would... Uh- make you feel so fucking helpless. Yeah. And, and my personality is, is, was more than I'm changed. I've changed a lot, but was very aggressive. You know, like I just wanted to go and slit the throat of the truck driver. No That's all I want to do. Like yeah. find me a weapon. <laughs> I'm going to get this guy. Right. But then I, I, I had to kind of pump the brakes a bit and realize I don't help anybody by going full vigilante in the moment. I could help them though, if I come back and start maybe working with legislation, trying to change some things, um, working on the political side, working on the social side, and in our case, working on the educational side and trying to teach kids that, hey, there's maybe more 
to this world than what you see on TikTok or it wasn't TikTok then, but you know, MySpace back then or whatever. Yeah. Friendster. Yeah. Or whatever <laughs> it was. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of the, the motive. And then it just became this giant kind of movement where we started taking kids from all over North America and, and going to, we focused on, um, we took a lot to Mexico, a lot to DR, Dominican Republic, Dominican, yeah. a lot to Haiti. And then we did some small groups to Eastern Europe, like Romania, and then Thailand and Cambodia were our focuses. Well, I actually want to go to DR here for a second because you were doing, you know, quite a bit of chari- charitable work there mm-hmm. um, at this time and uh, bringing the students there. And you guys were working in the garbage dumps, Yep, you know, helping, helping a lot of families, recycling, doing whatever you can, doing your part while you're there. And you're watching families going through the garbage, basically taking food from people's waste on their all-inclusive trips Mm -hmm. and just getting the scraps of that. And you're watching families go and trying to find a meal through that. Yeah. And this is where you didn't know at the time that you would meet your, your future daughter with lean. And, can you just sort of take me back to that moment and how how that all came to be? And I'm, I'm, I mean, I know at the time you didn't realize how pivotal that moment would be in your life, uh-huh. but yeah. uh, can you take me back there for a second? Yeah, sure. Um, we started, we did um, 10 day trips, you know, and we tried to always build something on the trip. So we split our days up was basically morning and afternoon, pretty short work periods. It's like 40 degrees of heat and these kids have never experienced that. So we take a group in the morning and go to a job site, like we're building houses. And then in the afternoon, we do the alternate site. One of the alternates was the garbage dump. Other ones were a children's hospital, you know, or an orphanage or whatever. But the garbage dump was, was a very, um, I used to call it emotional abuse. <laughs> yeah, that's what we were doing to these kids, right? Yeah. Because we wanted to rock them so hard that, to understand that what I have is valuable. Um, so the garbage dump experience was very simple. We'd go into the dump and there's about 50 or 60 Haitians in the dump that we were in. Now there's tens of thousands of Haitians living in garbage dumps around Dominican Republic. Anywhere, this is gonna, I'm sorry to the listeners, but I gotta do it, right? Sure. Yeah, um, you've got anytime, anytime we go to a discount all-inclusive, whether it be DR or Mexico or wherever, you know, we always scratch our head and go, wow, I just got $4.99 all inclusive, you know, all I can drink and all I can eat. Someone isn't getting paid. If you think, you do the math on that and figure it out, someone along the line is not being paid. So what's happening is um, anywhere you've got that excess and that kind of thing happening, there's always a group of people. Uh, even even the waiters and waitresses in in these places are living in shacks when they go home. They look like they're, you know, all white Put shirt together. and pressed yeah. pants and stuff. They're going home to garbage, basically. Um, but anyhow, we, so we knew that. So uh, we discovered that everywhere there's a tourist strip in Dominican Republic, the landfills in the area are filled with Haitians because of the excess and the waste because we're North Americans and we're fat and we're stupid and we're gluttons. gluttons yeah. And we just suck at making decisions. So, you know, it's just it's just a shitty, ah, what is it, uh, over-consumer mentality, right? Yeah. Like, we just want more and we don't need more. So, anyhow. Addicted to comfort, right? Yeah, right. So, you've got, you've got dump trucks after dump trucks coming in every 10, 15 minutes and dumping 
food that was left over and scraped off the tray at the all-inclusives and Haitians diving into the pile to find something. And it's like, it's heartbreaking when you first see it. And uh, we, we rolled up there the first, first or second year we did it. And um, there was one lady stood out of the 50 or 60 that were there because she had an infant. I mean, infant, uh, she was just about two. So toddler, I guess, yeah. you know, at that point on her arm. And in that hand, she had one and she was kind of juggling a garbage bag with a baby. So she's got the bag and the baby and she's picking up these bottles and chucking them in the bag. And they would fill a garbage bag. And it's not a, like a normal garbage bag we have. It's like a six foot tall, clear plastic bag. And no joke, taller than me. Okay, I'm not six feet, but it's taller than me. That's crazy. And they would get a dollar. Do you know how long it takes to fill that damn bag with plastic? A dollar. And I'm sitting there going, this is, this is worse than slave labor, but it's still a dollar they didn't have before. Yeah. And on, on the journey of getting the dollar, they're eating and they're finding food. She's feeding this two-year-old from shit leftovers, like stuff that you would, would reconsider letting your dog eat. You wouldn't let your dog eat it Jesus probably. Christ. Medical waste. There's there's stepping. There's needles and there's gauze and shit from the hotels and from you know because there's always a hospital or a clinic. So, anyways, I see this baby. I, I go over and I'm like, hey, um, I because I, my goal. <laughs> this is going to sound bad, but you know, I found the organization. So the teenagers we bring, they can do all the work. I'm going to be over here. I'm going to be dishing out the cold water to the workers right? <laughs> in did, the shade. Yeah, <laughs> you did enough work I before did, that. Yeah, I you got you earned your stripes. I earned my stripes. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, let me take that kid over there. And and I I wasn't actually quite honest with you really that fond of kids. <laughs> is, that, is that a bad thing to admit? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I you see, you know, they cry and they crap a lot. They, they, they annoy me. They puke yeah. and, you know, they want stuff. They got to be fed, whatever. So I wasn't a big fan, but pick up this little kid and go in the shade. And um, we'd, so we're doing a watering station. We would tell our, our participants, like every 20 minutes, pound a glass of cold water because it was hot. And because it's a landfill, there's no trees. So no shade, oh, right? None. I was, I had a, a, a like a, a Toyota Land Cruiser and I had the back hatch up and that was my shade. Yeah. So I'm sitting in there and this little kid had a chronic sinus infection. So she was always, always had a snotty nose. So we nicknamed her Snotball. <laughs> we, no joke, didn't even know her name. Like we just called her Snotball for like three years. <laughs> There's blogs written about Snotball. Snotball. <laughs> yeah. So it was really funny. But I mean, how could you not have a sinus infection? You're living in a, in a place where there's just shit and smoke. Right. That's it. You're inhaling smoke because they're burning. Uh, Over here, 20 meters away, they're burning garbage. And up here, they're they're digging through it. Jesus Christ. Man, you, just you'd almost have to throw, you'd and... almost have to throw your clothes away. We'd go back and the smell on your clothes when you go back to the hotel, you're like, oh my God, this is putrid. It was terrible. Yeah. So, so anyways, all that to say, uh, that's how I met this little girl, uh, got to know her, got to know her mom. Uh, and that, and you know, kind of a couple of years went by and then later, uh, we find out that the mom had passed away and, uh, she went to live with her grandmother. Well, her grandmother already had a couple of grandkids that she was watching and this, there's just too many mouths to feed when you don't have an income. And we just, I, sorry, I keep coming back to this, but we, in Canada, we think we got it bad, you know, like, you know, do, man. Uh, it, it's, it's crazy. Cause it's like. I don't know, man. It's like you have more, so you have more to complain about. Yeah. It's crazy. And, uh, you know, we would consider, let's let's not talk pandemic. Let's put, 
pandemic notwithstanding. Sure. Because uh, things change a little bit, but in Canada, worst case, what's worst case scenario? You get so broke, you can't work. Is it social assistance, welfare? That's it, right? I mean, there's a Shelters, net. Yeah. So there's a net that'll catch us. Yeah. And whatever it is, I don't know, 1800 bucks a month or 1000 bucks. I don't know what it is, but it's something mm-hmm. that the government will say, here, take that with no requirement to do anything. You know, so there's something. So our worst case scenario is social assistance. If we hit Canadian worst case scenario, that lands us in the top 3% wealthiest people on earth. That's insane. On earth. So 97% of the world lives with less than what we would get in what we would call our worst case scenario. It's screwed up. Like it's. We're just in our fucking bubble. We just complain and complain. So I I keep, I'm sorry. I keep coming back. I'm kind of passionate about that perspective piece. I I, I get it. Um, So, so, you know, we're, we're in this, in this situation and this little, little girl is there and we hear people complain and it's just, it's all echoing around our head. And then, so now mom dies, she's with grandmother and, and with that culture, if you're, you know, in Canada, we're broke, we get help. They're broke. They don't eat. It's just simple. They just don't eat. So at that point, the grandkids were eating once every four days. Think about that as a young growing child. I have a three-year-old. He eats every five minutes. Right. <laughs> like, seriously, I might need a second job just to feed him. I get hangry if I miss lunch. <laughs> right? <laughs> so so anyways, um, the grandmother, just long story short, she couldn't do it. She couldn't. Yeah. One more mouth was not possible. Uh, and they, even then, the kids were on a, on a slab of cardboard from an old fridge box sitting on a dirt floor in an aluminum shack. Yeah. Honest to God, if you put your dog in that shack in Canada, somebody would call the SPCA. No joke. And there was eight people living in it. So, uh, and the kids were on the cardboard on the floor. They had this solution. You could buy it in the store for like really cheap and you'd put it on the kids' fingers and toes at night because rats would come in and nibble on their toes. Oh my God. And they put it on so the rat, it, was distasteful to the the vermin. So this is the situation. So then she says, well, we can't do it. So there was a family member or a, a family friend in back in Haiti that said, well, I'll take her. So then this little girl was shipped to Haiti. And what happens in Haiti with kids that are orphaned and, and potentially, um, you know, have no other option, they get sold in Haiti, there's a system called rest avec, which is is French Creole for to stay with, rest avec, you know, stay with. Um, and they're, it's slavery. It's modern-day slavery. Kids are bought. So a poor family will sell their child to, an, I, I'm going to say a rich family, but let's say a less impoverished family. Yeah. And and that kid will become a slave, a servant to that that family, 97, no, okay, I'll say the number, the stat that I've heard. How do you keep stats in a, in a, in a place like that? But of course. Uh, they say 97%, I'm going to say a high percentage and in either physical or sexual abuse. And that, per, that kid is stunted and never becomes a functioning adult because they're born into slavery. They, they were sold into slavery. And this is today. Too, this, this is, is today. today man. This is like, happening today, and it's accepted. It's fully accepted in Haiti. It's like, oh, well, we got too many chores to do around the house. Let's go get a restavac. Let's go it. buy a restavac. And so, okay, I'm 
some of this I've never shared publicly, so I'm kind of stepping out here because I've kind of been on a hiatus for two years. COVID kind of put me underground. Hey, man, and this, the P- this is what the platform's yeah, for, man. Like, exactly. And the PTSD from what we're going to talk about later. Yeah. I kind of I disappeared for two years. No joke. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, COVID. I'm like, yeah, COVID. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so fucked up right now from everything we went through. It's not COVID. It's uh, 2020 was the best year of my life. You know, it got us out of that country, but yeah. uh, the following two years of since being home was like, we're just now, and I met earlier today with our agent and we're like, I just told him, I'm like, sorry, I've been non-responsive, but we've just been dysfunctional. <laughs> just, yeah. We just screwed up. So anyways, all that. Um, where was I going with that? I had something I was saying. Uh, well, you were, you were talking about your daughter being right. So with, she goes, with the slavery. Yes. And, uh, yeah. So and, uh, anyway, hey. that's the, that's the thing, right? It's this, uh, it ends in emotional or, or psychological or physical abuse. So we go, we find out the mother died. We find out that this little girl, Snotball, has now been shipped to Haiti. So we went back to the grandmother and said, and this was, um, I, I want to say maybe a year after the mother's death. There was a, maybe four or five months with the grandmother and then a few more months in Haiti. And we go back and we're like, can we adopt her? Well, she's in Haiti. I'm like, what the hell is she doing in Haiti? Well, I couldn't feed her. Well, okay. Can you help us find her? Sure. If we find her, can we adopt her? Would you sign the paperwork for us to adopt her? And this, I was, I was adopted. So adoption is, is, is a close to my heart to start with, but of all the responses that the grandmother could have given us, so we're like, well, maybe she'll say no. Cause you know, we don't like white people or something, you know, something crazy, or we don't want her to go all the way to Canada. We'll never see her again. Or, Maybe or yes, but uh, you know, I want ten thousand dollars or something, you know, because we don't know. We don't know what's going on in her head. We had prepared ourselves for every response that we could have imagined she'd say, except what she said. She's like, Yeah, if you adopt her, maybe she won't die. Oh my gosh. So she's just expecting death sentence. She knew when she sent her to Haiti, it's the beginning of the end. She knew it. That's that's fucked up, man. That's crazy. So we we're looking in this grandmother's eyes, and she's like, all of a sudden, there's like a little bit of hope. You know, maybe I can save one of them. Maybe. So I'm like, oh my god, this is just this went to zero to sixty, right? Like, what do we do? So we start like, well, how do we find a kid in Haiti? There's nine and a half million people running. Around, no, sorry, thirteen and a half million people running around Haiti, and the. the all these little kids, man, they're like, you know, two feet tall yeah. and they're black and I, they all look alike to me. I can't, you know, yeah. I, they're just little kids. Right. I'm going to find them. And no joke, in two weeks we found her. Uh, I swear to God. How just. Haitian culture is more connected than Facebook. You give, <laughs> you give a couple of Haitian cell phones, you can get anything you want. Like it's unbelievable. Like I couldn't believe it. She's like, okay. And she sends a text to somebody. I'm like, and this is like an old Alcatel with like the T9. It takes her like 40 minutes to say hi. You know, one of those, yeah. you know, you're typing three times to get a letter A. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> Remember yeah. those? Of course. Uh, so that's all we had. Right. So she's sending these texts and anyways, she, she's like, okay, got her. We, you know, she spoke to the lady and she comes back and she says, uh, okay, so the lady's okay. She's happy to meet you at the border. And, um, but she's going to want to get paid. I'm like, here it comes. Here it comes. So I went prepared 
I didn't have the cash, but I've been pretty good at raising money my whole life. <laughs> you know, when it comes to a cause, I can get people to part with some money to help some, a bigger picture. Yeah. So I had 10 grand prepared, you know, with someone that I said, up to 10, would you help us out? This guy said, yeah, I'll help you out. He knew the story and he knew they were going to pay him back. <sighs> like, oh, I hope it doesn't come to that, you know, but, uh, I just, I just, you hear all the stories. You hear all the stories of people leveraging kids and they see our white skin. They think we're an ATM. They think we're yeah. rich. And and it always happens to us because we would show up in a country with, you know, a, a container load of building materials and we'd build a school. Well, they thought that came from my checking account. Well, I've been raising money for a year. Me and 80 you, yeah. kids have been raising money for a year to just get there. But they, they see us show up and that guy's the leader. Wow, he must have a lot of money. Man, you have no idea how broke I am. Right. So um, anyway, so we're prepared. And she's going to meet us at the border. So we go to the border, opens at 8 in the morning. There's a bridge and a river. One side's Dominican, one side's Haiti. And you can see a steady stream of Haitians with everything they own on their back, wading like nipples high through the river to the new life in Dominican Republic. It, it just hundreds of them just going. <laughs> Nobody cares. As long as you don't cross the bridge, you don't give a shit. Like, just go. Wow. So we're standing on this bridge and it's eight in the morning. I'm expecting to see her and it's going to be this glorious moment. The angels are going to sing hallelujah and everything else. Uh, and she's not there. I'm like, oh, so we wait and we wait and we think, okay, time, you know, living on island time, whatever. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it noon comes and goes. Now we can't get a hold of anybody. We've got the phone number of the lady who's watching this little girl. Can't can't get her. The border closes at 5.30 and it's five o'clock. And our driver, because we got eight military checkpoints to go through to get back to where we're going because they don't want Haitians coming into DR, right? So, and then we go to a checkpoint and there's a bunch of white people in a Jeep with a little Haitian baby. You know, they're looking for some payout, uh, them and their AK <laughs> your weapons. So, and we get to 5.30. I'm like, Shit, this is, we've been taken for a ride. She's going to call us back tomorrow and it's going to be uh, inflation and all the others. Uh, I just think I'm so Pessimistic dejected point, yeah. now. Like I'm just like, had the you know, guts kicked out of me. And I went through a lot to get there. Um, just uh, not to get into this, but I was the first responder. I was on my way to Bu Buffalo airport to fly down to do this trip to pick up this little girl. And at three in the morning on the, the big S curve before the airport, I watched a collision right in front of me. And uh, it was, there were several fatalities and I was the first responder. So I come out and I'm, I'm picking parts and people off the road God. and I'm not a medic. Right. So a cop was cut right in half. Like I watched this whole thing happen. Holy fuck. Yeah. And I'm, 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 I'm carrying these girls that were, they were drunk and they're in this car into my car to safety and they're bleeding all over me. <laughs> so I was, I was like, just ah, my mind was gone. You weren't even over fucking that shit. How, how yeah. I, so I hadn't even gotten to the airport yet. And I, I remember walking, this is funny. And I'll get back to the real issue here, but I walked in and jet blue, they all knew me because I was flying every week there with yeah. them, right? And I'm late, late, late for the flight. They're boarding, and I'm just walking to the airport. I walk in, and she goes, Vaden, you're late. And then she looks at me. I'm head to toe covered in blood. Yeah, I'm yeah. wearing one flip-flop. The other one is gone. <laughs> I'm wearing some shirt that I got man. like from a volunteer firefighter because I gave mine to wrap up somebody's head. <laughs> like, oh. like, I'm just like a mess. She goes, 
I'm guessing you got a good reason. I'm like, yeah, I got a good reason. <laughs> so Man. like the police brought me to the airport. Like I just, that, to get me another time. So anyways, so I get there and I'm already like, my mind is a mess. My phone won't stop ringing because of the lawyers of everyone in the accident in Buffalo. I'm in Haiti. I'm answering my phone. It's cost me like, you know, $10,000 every time I pick up my phone in yeah. roaming fees. So I just, my day is going poorly. And now this little girl is not there and this lady's not bringing her and I'm just pissed. So we get to 5.30 and we call. I said, I said to my guy, call her one more time. It's 5.30. They've closed the bridge now. It's Gate is shut. Best case scenario, it's tomorrow morning. She answers. 30 seconds after the gate closes, she answers the phone. I'm like, are you kidding me? She goes, where have you guys been? So there was a pavilion, a concrete pavilion like you'd see like in an old, like, I don't know, a playground or something with a roof on it, with a concrete roof. To keep the little girl in the shade, she stayed in the pavilion, but she couldn't get cell service in there. So she's over there wondering when are these assholes going to call me? And we're over there wondering when is this crazy lady going to answer her phone? We were 200 feet apart the whole time, but in two different countries. So anyways, we had to, because the border closed, I'm like, I'm not going back and come back tomorrow. Like we're crossing the river. So that's what we did. So we brought her across the river. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so we get her across and she comes to where we lived and her name is Woodling, not Snotball, believe it or not. <laughs> and her you pat- still call her Snotball? I don't call her. I, I call her a lot of things. <laughs> Snotball is not one of them. But so she, uh, she turns 16 in July. So she's here. She almost came. She's in Toronto right now. She's seeing some friends there. So otherwise she would have come here. Nice. Um, but yeah, so she's 16, she's got her driver's license and she's not a little snotball anymore. Right. She's a pain in the ass, but she's not a snotball. <laughs> and Boy. she'll love when I say that. Hey, that's but beautiful. The crazy thing is if you crack open my book there on the back cover. I, I was going to ask you about So this. that photo, um, I told my assistant, uh, you might even have known her when you did the tour, Diane. I don't know if you met Diane. D, they call her at the- Oh, D. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So D was my assistant at the time. The publisher of this book, I was going to self-publish, and then it got picked up by a publisher in the 11th hour. He goes, you don't have a photo of yourself. I'm like, dude, I own a mirror. You, no one wants to see a photo of me in a book, right? Like, <laughs> like I know what I look like. Listen, listen, we want to sell these things, right? right. He goes, no, no, no. They'll, people will connect more if they see your face. So I called D at like 2 in the morning. I'm like, D, I want you to go through some photos of me. I, I Two criteria. I don't want to look stupid in it. So that really narrowed it down. And it needs to be, I need to be doing something. I'm not doing a pose like the author pose with the hand on the chin. I'm not doing it. Action shot, do something, you know? So she picks this photo. In 2007, the book came out. So, which, which I'll say, everybody listening, definitely check this book out. Uh, it's, it's not an easy read. It's not an easy read, but it, it's, uh, it's, it's very sobering and uh, it's a necessary read. And it's called One, A Face Behind the Numbers by, by Vaden Earl. You definitely want to check that out, which was also a bestseller in Canada. Sorry, just, no, just no, to let uh, people know. Appreciate the plug. Um, to, so the timeline is this. 2007, the book comes out. 2009, or 2008, her mom dies. 2009, we decide to adopt her. 2009. Mm-hmm. Now, the book came out in 07, went to print. So the photo of me and that little girl is me under the back of the Toyota, the yeah. she's holding the glass of water at the watering right. station. She's that random kid, right? I She had a mother 
when this picture was taken. Yeah. So people say, oh, it's really cool that you put your daughter in your book. I'm like, you have no idea. She wasn't my daughter. She was a picture my assistant picked out of a pile. That's crazy. Like, man. if you don't believe in what serendipity, the, if you didn't before, you have to believe now. What are the odds of that? No joke. 2010, I'm in Dominican Republic working on my laptop in my living room, and she's playing with my little pony on the floor. And I look at her, I'm like, Holy crap, she's the kid in my book. <laughs> Three years later. Wow. Man. You're right? like, ah, this that's is the crazy. kid we adopted. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. That's insane, yeah. man. So that's that that's kind of how that came about. So yeah, um, that's the long version of 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 no. what transpired, which started then the next decade of my life. Yeah, because you is, know, like in I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but you know, the one day, which was January twenty-fifth, two thousand nine. Which you brought you brought uh, uh, your daughter from from uh, from Haiti back to Dominican, mm-hmm. and just a month later, personally, you were in a very dark place. Yeah, and you you were basically at your wits' end, mm-hmm. and uh, really ready to call it like just Done. call it as it is. You're ready yep. to you're ready to end your life. Yep. And uh, speaking of serendipitous moments, there was some some things that 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 happened that that saved you there. What what was were you just just emotionally just I don't know I, I don't know how to put it into words, but right. like just emotionally you were just you sort of hit a wall and that was it for you at the time. Or yeah, I mean, uh, she saved your life too. And that's that's the see, right? that's the irony when people say to me, "I think you saved her life," and like you have no idea. That yeah. shoe needs to be on the other foot. Like she saved my life, absolutely. Uh, so we we brought her, like I said, like you just said, to Dominican Republic to our place there. Um, and I was still having to commute back and forth, running an organization in Canada and stuff. And um, yeah, I, whatever. There was a a number of doctors have theorized about what happened, but um, the most the one that makes the most sense is that there's a weird duplicated chromosome you know that i somehow have yeah luck of the draw and it can get activated when your dopamine your serotonin and a few other different things are spiked at the same time and they actually went back to believe it or not the car accident in buffalo and what i went through there and they say that may have activated this i'll call it what it's psychosis like i mean yeah. i never did come down from that. Like I, the adrenaline and the feeling I had of, of seeing what I saw and, and going through this whole situation, like I got there. So I watched the, the, the collision. I called 911. It took 18 minutes for the emergency crew to get there. And I was me and another guy that showed up, were moving people and, and trying to keep these kids who were drunk out of their brains or, or in shock, trying to keep them off the highway. It's right on, on 96. You know, like, this, is, yeah. this is not a, uh, this is not a country road. Yeah. And we're trying to keep them off the highway. And we're, I'm, I've got lights flashing on every vehicle that I could find just to slow traffic down. And I'm trying to, I'm, I, you know, I take the lead in this thing. And it's just, a, it was a mess. It was a mess. One girl had like 16 teeth knocked out. Like, so it's just like, she's in my little Volkswagen golf, right? Bleeding all over the place. And it was just one of these things where, you you go into shock and you go into adrenaline and you just do it. You you do what yeah. you have to do. You feel what you feel you need to do. I I was sued by six different families. Are you serious? Yeah, because apparently in the states, so when you show up on a scene, you don't touch anybody or you're getting sued. 
Come on. So one girl, this is crazy. This is how, how asinine this really was. One girl had, I mean, okay, they were traveling. I was traveling about a buck 30 because I was already late for my flight. Yeah. And they blew by me like I was standing still. And then they hit a parked car. They hit a cop who was oh. pulled over. Parked. They hit the car. So the cop was pulled on the side of the road in his Jeep because he was having engine trouble. And they passed me like a bat out of hell. And boom, just nailed this cop right in his driver's side door. The door went right through him. Oh, my God. Sliced him right in half. And, and then they just flipped over on upside down. And I'm like, and then they rolled, they rolled back to the wheels again. And, and I run up and like, I'm like, I see something just pouring out the bottom. Like, it's gas. This thing's going to go. Like, I'm thinking, because you see the movies, right? Like, of course. It's, it's all in movies. I go up. It's blood. This one kid, his legs are just pulverized. He's bleeding. So, so anyways, I go through all this and I'm trying to do what I can. And, and so the irony is one lawyer said that girl has whiplash because you, I was at the time I was bodybuilding a lot. So I was in, you know, pretty big shape. Like, cause yeah. that big guy picked her up too fast. I'm like, Oh, you don't think it was from hitting a fixed object at 180 kilometers an hour? Are you kidding me? They tried to sue me. It was like over 5 million in lawsuits. No joke. Yeah. They were going to go for blood. But uh, I got one of the calls I got in Haiti was the DA from New York state. And he goes, listen, man, you're getting sued by everybody. I'm like, Oh, I guess the next time I won't help. He goes, no, you must be Canadian because no New Yorker ever would have fucking stopped and helped. Oh yeah. He's like, there's no way anyone stops. Everybody over there. Yeah. Right. So, and he goes, listen, Here's the deal. We can't subpoena you. We can't force you to come to court because you're not a re- or not a citizen. But we need your testimony because the drunk driver that caused it tried to leave the scene. And I grabbed him and wouldn't let him go. <laughs> He's the only guy that wasn't injured was the freaking driver. See that. And I was so pissed. I'm like, you're not going anywhere, dude. Like, if I'm going through this, you're going through this with me. So I wouldn't let him leave. I took his cell phone and threw him in the bush. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, fuck, man. So I'm like, you're not going anywhere, buddy. So uh, anyhow... The cop said, look, we need your testimony that he was aware of what happened. He tried to leave. We can get him for 25 years. I'm like, good, but we can't subpoena you. I'm like, okay, so what? I would have come voluntarily. He goes, if you agree to come and testify in court, I'll take care of the lawsuits and make it go away. I'm like, sold. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. okay, no problem. I don't think they could have got me anyways cross border, but they, they were going to try. But um, anyway, so, so all that to say, the doctors were like, that might've been the event that triggered it. So I, I got into this, it was weird. I started having blackouts. It was, I want to say innocent, but it was, I was in these blackouts where I'd be like, snap, you know, back to reality and go like, wow, eight hours just went by. Eight hours. And just unaccounted for. Yeah, they just started and I'd be at my desk or at home at the table or whatever. And then I'd be driving and I snap out of it and I'm like in another friggin' province. Like, like, or I'm I've crossed the border. Or I remember snapping back into these things and I was like, I don't even know where I am. I'm in a house. I had to go out and look for a sign, a street sign, and even know what city I was in. And it started happening all the time, like all the time. And it was sometimes it was horrible. Like the shit that I would just emerge from, which is horrible. And sometimes I'd just be like, oh my God, there's an envelope with 5,000 bucks in my pocket. Like, I'm like, what is going, what happened? I, I kind of want to know, yeah. you know so I could replicate the good ones. But I just, and it got really bad and it got like really dark. And I was seeing doctors and I did everything. I did surgeries. I did electroshock therapy. I mean, I did everything. And I just went to them like, like you just got to make this shit stop. I just can't handle this. And it was like, 
like these movies. If you watch Butterfly Effect, like, yeah. okay, so the, yeah. you know that crazy camera shimmery thing they would do? That was my life. Just that shimmery thing. It was like, ah, everything was just being, I couldn't, I, like, I just couldn't cope. And it was really bad. So they were, I, I got diagnosed from everything from schizophrenia to bipolar to, you know, deep psychosis. And no one really knows because with mental illness, like there's so much cross diagnosis. You never know. Like they all look kind of the same and there's little nuances of each one. Anyway, whatever happened, happened. And it was horrible. They start, I start taking these drugs and they were putting me on like, medication that I was just in a walking coma and then I wasn't living at all. Like I was just bouncing off the walls and stuff. So I just said, so yeah, I was, like you said, I was at the end of my rope. Um, and I had a couple of people, I felt like I was like pretty seriously suicidal, like really like serious, like this is not like a ideation like this. I just might do this. Like I felt that way. But then when I was myself, I didn't want it in my life. I had lots to live for. But when I go into these moments, I'm like, oh, yeah, that'd be the best thing ever. Let's just end things. You know, like, so I didn't, I couldn't control when I would dip into these little episodes. episodes yeah. Sure, episodes. So I had people in my life that I, I I put on watch. And I said, look, if I if I text you a sad face, that means I'm kind of slipping. You know, I'm, I, I need a call. Because usually a, a, a human interaction could snap me at a, going in there once I was there didn't matter what was going on uh but if I text you an angry face I'm gone like I'm gone like you gotta call 911 yeah so uh one night apparently uh I texted an angry face to or a sad face first and then 20 minutes later an angry face to a friend out in Victoria BC but she was like in the shower or something and didn't get her text and I was uh sitting at home alone and don't ask me why I had a friggin' pistol in my house, but I did. And it was loaded and the barrel was sitting in my mouth. I just sat there and it rattled around my teeth and didn't taste very good. And I'm, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I could feel my, I could feel my psyche start to romanticize what was happening, but a part of me was holding it back. You know, there's a part of me, there's like this, this inner fight and, and it was holding it back. And, I could see it. like could just visualize, you know, I'm going to pull the trigger. I got this white wall behind me and it's going to make this artistic, you know, this, this weird shit your mind does, you know, when you're not in control. Yeah. And then a part of me is like, no, no, this, this is not good. You know, I, I had no more control. I, my phone was on the floor and all of a sudden I just remember hearing ding, 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 ding. And then beep, beep, beep. And then some jingle and all these different noises sound like it was at the freaking carnival. I'm like, yeah, I start to go crazy. And I, I pulled the gun out of my mouth and I'm like, this is really agitating me. So my friend got out of the shower, saw the two texts and realized, oh shit. And she started with text and then phone call and then Skype. And then like every other I am, there was known to mankind. So I heard all of the ringtones that, that, you know, Google and Apple did back in the day, all of them, because every device in the house was going crazy. Mm. And it woke me up and it snapped me out. And I pick up the phone and she is cursing like a sailor because she's trying to shock me. She's like, you, I, I, you know, you know, and, and she starts telling me like, you know, you're being selfish. You know, you need to smarten up because who cares what you want? Nobody gives a shit about you. It's not what you want. You have a little girl now. You have a daughter. That was it. That's what did, that's what snapped me out is when the onus became not about being a human or being a person, it was about being a father. And she became your wife. 
Your guiding light, yep. man. Kept me alive. Like she kept me alive that day. So <laughs> to me, it's funny. It's humorous. People are like, you know, you saved her. I'm like, uh, if you only knew the whole story, you know, of what happened. And even in the last three or four years and what's gone down, like, well, I, I come back to that. I come back to that night so often. I'm like, well, ah. you're each other's guardian angels. Yeah. You know, like, like give yourself a little bit of credit there, you know, and thank God, thank God you didn't cross over. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, and you're here to actually share your story, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you're helping someone survive because of this. Well, and, I hope so. I yeah, hope so. Yeah, and uh, that's unbelievable what you went through. But you are as as much as your daughter is your your guiding light. You've been her guiding light, and you guys are obviously meant to to meet for for deep deep reasons, man. It's for sure we are, and and we're a pair. Like she's got, it's really funny. She's got my personality. I don't know how that works because you know there's no biology there. But and she blames every time someone says something or whatever. She's being sassy. She's like, blame my dad. I got his personality. <laughs> so it's like, sure. wait a minute here. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean that just going through that uh-huh. would have been a fucking shitload to take for anybody. Yeah, but that was still. Just kind of the start of the journey to get your girl here in yeah. in Canada, man. Yeah. And some years back, was it 2010? I believe the. But as everybody knows, it was the it was that infamous Haiti earthquake yeah. that everybody knows of. Yep. Um, and everyone's forgotten about. And everyone's forgotten about. That that shook your world up in many more ways than than it did uh, us by hearing that news. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me about where you were when you heard about Haiti, <laughs> how that affected you personally, and what those next few days actually looked like. Yeah, so the incident we just talked about was was in the summer of '09, July July twenty fifth '09. She came across the border. That was August 29th, I believe, 09, that I had that that moment with the gun. I went into uh, medical leave as CEO of the charity. I took a year off. We called it we called it medical leave. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of words for it, but I just needed to not be doing what I was doing. I need to break. Um, so doctor imposed. And the earthquake happened. Oh, sorry, I, I, should, I should fill in the blank. We were processing this adoption and I had help from some members of parliament. I was very politically involved at the time. So I had the minister of immigration personally helping. So I'm like, oh, this is easy. This is a chip shot for him. Right. He said five grand in legal fees and 12 weeks she'll be home. And he said that to me June 15th of 09. Well, she came home March 27th of 2020. So <laughs> $380,000 later. Uh, in just and fees and fees, oh right. my god, yeah. So anyway, uh, we signed the documents. We went back and forth. We did everything we had to do. The final documents were signed on December fifteenth, two thousand and nine. So now I'm on medical leave. I'm able to travel back and forth to Haiti and finish the adoption, get it done. Uh, December fifteenth, the last day before they break for Christmas in the government uh, world down there. They on the sixteenth, they're gone for like a month. Um or three weeks or whatever it was. So documents are signed December 15th. I'm home. They told us it's going to take, once they come back from Christmas holidays, it'll take a few more weeks, but the end of January, she'll be good to travel to Canada End of January. 
So she's now in Dominican Republic. We had a house there. So she was living there. Uh, had to hire a nanny, put her there because we still had obligations in Canada to deal with. So we came back to Canada. And you guys were traveling like every two weeks, Yeah, right? back and like forth. You guys yeah. were doing hundreds of flights a year, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the time in airports, all the time. Um, and we're back in Canada and I was training at the gym in Grimsby, down the road, like down the hill from here, basically, yeah. at Good Life. And I'm on the treadmill and I'm looking for fumbling around with the remote trying to figure out, oh, there's something I can watch so I can, you know, convince myself I'm not on a bloody treadmill because I hate treadmills. But I had to do it, so I'm looking, and I'm like, CNN, and it says, earthquake in Haiti, thousands feared dead. I look further, and it shows the map, and it shows where the epicenter is. I'm like, that's right where our orphanage is. Like, it's right there. I'm like, shit. So I run out. I'm in a cold sweat. I run into the, I'm looking for my phone in the locker room, and and make some phone calls, and I call up JetBlue. They were our sponsors, so they, they said, there'll be a plane waiting in Buffalo. You take as many people, as many doctors, yeah. construction workers, volunteers, supplies, whatever you want. Plane's ready, no cost, of course. So I put put a team together and we take off to Buffalo and we fly down. And uh, we spent four or five days going through absolute hell. I mean, the stuff that I saw at that earthquake scene I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like I can't, 310,000 people, or estimated 310 to 315,000 people died. But none of them died in the earth, of an earthquake. They died of poverty. They just died because they were too poor because their houses were made poorly because they couldn't afford to make them properly. Yeah. Just all poverty. And most of them didn't die in the initial quake. They got trapped. They got trapped inside the structures because the walls were made with almost no concrete and just sand and water. No rebar. No right, no rebar. But yeah. the rebar in the ceiling, of course. Yeah. So then when, when the earth quaked and shook, the walls went to powder and the ceilings came down flat Ugh. and created a trap and they're stuck. We went to a church. The first stop, and uh, this is a, a digression, but I'll give you this one example. We went to a church, 53 people in a church. Every Tuesday night, they get together at five o'clock and pray for the safety of Haiti. Now, I don't know if you're religious or your listeners are religious or what, but anyone who's religious and believes in God, this story is going to kind of fuck with their head a little bit because yeah. it really, it's really hard to take. They were praying. They were, if anybody deserves to be protected from a natural disaster, it's the people that are praying against the natural disasters, you know, like- In the church. In the church. They're taking their time. And that church came down and all 53 were alive, but trapped. We oh. couldn't get to them. The, because the walls were like 10 feet tall. And when they go down, the, the building ultimately was about three feet tall when it, when it was all settled, the roof. So you got now this three feet of space, but this wall that was- eight inches thick is now three feet thick. You can't get through it. It's just rocks and, and concrete and you can't get there. And there's one excavator in the entire country and the American government rented it to dig for American survivors. And that was it. So we're sitting there like we're talking to these people. You can hear them. Oh my God. They're telling us, say goodbye to my family. Tell my kids I love them. Please oh my feed my God. babies. Like, and we're sitting there going, this is the, this is our first stop. Crossed the border, went right to that stop. We're like, oh my God. So four days of that, like of that. But one, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, I did want to ask about uh, about Pierre as well. Yeah. It, I'll, I'll land on Pierre. Yeah. One of the stops along the way though was the same place I signed the adoption papers. Uh, 
on the 15th. So we're talking 25 days prior. And it was a three-story government building, beautiful marble pillars and ornate everything. It stood like chest high, like three stories, and it was gone, just a big pile of nothing. And I sat there, and uh, I got our translator. I'm like, you need to ask around someone, someone who knows something. I knew our records were gone. Like, I mean, there's, you couldn't dig shit out of that place. I mean, you, you know, there's no way you're getting anything. But I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe one of the two people we dealt with, our caseworker or else the director. And it's not like some of these, like us here, it's not like they have a backup. There's no cloud. Computers. There's no yeah. cloud. No, there's, there's no. nothing. It's coil notebooks. It's all coil notebooks. Still today, it's coil notebooks. Barbie and Transformers. No joke. I'm not kidding you. Like you go in, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to my vital statistics folder. Boom. Transformers and Barbie and He-Man <laughs> and all these coil notebooks they got on sale. Because it's just paper. They just need paper have, and pens. Yeah. That's what they got. And he comes out and he says, okay, I got a list of who was working and who was trapped in the building and died. And he reads through the list and he gets to the second last one. It was my caseworker. I'm like, the f- I can't even explain. Like, it was like that moment the rug came out. I'm like, oh, man, I knew. Cause this I'm is fucking days away oh, from her being approved to 20 come to days and she's traveling to Canada. We painted the bedroom. We bought the car seat. Like, I mean, it's done. And, and I, I know process. Uh, most people wouldn't have known what that meant. They would have just thought, okay, well, well then we'll go another avenue. But I know the process because I'm a political person, politically active. In fact, there's a legislation in Haiti. This is, if there's a, such a thing as, as cosmic irony, I am the victim of it every day of my damn life because there's a legislation in Haiti where after a natural disaster, um, it's, it's worldwide, but I pushed hard for Haiti to adopt this legislation. I was one of the ones that was like, you have to do this because of what I saw in Thailand. Um, after a natural disaster, you have to put a moratorium on international adoption because bad people come in and say, I'm an adoption agent. And they're taking kids and trafficking Fuck. them all the time. Because you know what? How many... After that disaster, think about the tsunami in Thailand. How many kids are wandering going, where are my parents? Someone comes and says, oh, I'm here to help. Come with me, get in this van, and boom, they're gone. And it happens all the time. It happened in Haiti. A Baptist church thought they were helping kids, and 40 kids were taken in traffic before the government stopped it. Well, the one statistic that you shared in your your book here, where it's just behind... Drug trafficking. Yeah. It's it's a billion dollar fucking industry. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And so I, I was one of the people pushing and writing the letters that Haiti would adopt this three-year moratorium. Well, they did. And simple math, when you get a home study and you're approved for adoption in Canada, it lasts three years. Well, we were approved on the 15th of December. So when Haiti's adoption moratorium came out on the 10th of January my approval to adopt her expired three weeks, three years later before the moratorium was lifted. So even if we said, let's wait three years for the moratorium to be lifted, we're still three weeks shy. (laughs) It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? So it all went, went to shit, right? So we just decided, well, maybe, maybe the play here is just live in Dominican Republic, build a life there. Cause if you're going to get trapped in a country, 
eh, get trapped in a country with beaches. <laughs> why not, right? And, and good cigars. <laughs> like, why? If you're going to do it, do it right. So we got a place on the beach, like literally on, like you could flick your beer cap and land it in the ocean, um, right on the beach. We got a place and said, well, let's raise this little girl until she's 18 and then sponsor her to come to Canada as an adult. That's it. That's what we got. I mean, it's shitty because we had plans. We had big plans. We had schools that she was going to go to and yeah. friends that she was going to meet and just cool stuff in Canada, right? And um, we just punch to the gut, we just couldn't get it done. Like we just, and we had to say, at, at, at the best case scenario, we still had to wait until the end of the three-year moratorium. And at that point, we've got roots. She's got roots in Dominican Republic. Why would we tear that apart? I mean, we try, of course. So we started and we started and we, we did everything with all the politicians. We did it all. And I know these guys, like I, I actually, I really dislike Trudeau. Like, I, I mean, of all the civilians in Canada, I, by civilian, I mean, non politicians. Yeah. My hatred for Trudeau might be the most well-documented of all of us in Canada. Like, honestly, it's all over the news, right? Yeah, it like, is. It, so I don't think that's a hidden thing, but no joke. Because I, I partied with Trudeau long before he was a politician. As did I. Yeah. And I thought he was a dick then. Like, I honestly, and I don't know if I'm supposed to say that on here, but I really did. Do your thing. Um, but when he was elected, I'm like, it's the best news I've heard. Because if anybody on earth is pro-immigration, it's that dude. Yeah. You know, like, I don't like him. I don't like his policy on 99 out of 100 things he does. But I like the fact that he has compassion for people that were born who didn't win the birth lottery. And he, he, looked, he looked you right in the eye and said that he would have your daughter here. 30 days. A, in 30 days. Right. The, just over here. Just like at the beach festival. Like, really? It was, that was in Winona. That was at the peach festival. In front you know, of everybody. Do you know why he came to me? He wouldn't have come. He wouldn't give me time of day. He knew to stay away from me. City News in Toronto was chasing him down. They didn't give a shit about Trudeau. Yeah. But they're like, if you're going to be there, we're sending a crew because we want to see this thing. We want like this Royal Rumble, right? Yeah. They gave me a mic. <laughs> it, was a, it wasn't even fucking plugged in. They gave me a microphone, the big City News. Well, if anyone's a whore for publicity, it's Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Right? So he's, <laughs> he sees a guy with a mic. He's like, oh, a photo op. Let me go there. He walks right up to me. And I handed him the paperwork. And he kept saying, well, the family hasn't submitted the paperwork. I'm like, I'm the family. Yeah. Here's the paperwork. What else do you want? You're Ahmed Hussein, the minister of immigration, has had this for a long, long time. And you don't tell me the family. I'm the father. And he just like the look on his face. <laughs> like, like, uh, because <laughs> he was telling me about the father. Right. All about, uh, we're working with the father. I'm like, oh, are you? <laughs> you know, like, See really? That? Wow. Just well, lying to your just face. Just right to my face. Doesn't know who I am. It just. That's fucking And ridiculous. I had six encounters with Trudeau on this file. Six. Uh, they started like I would show up at his events. And then it got to the point where his MPs would invite me to where I wasn't supposed to be because they were secretly on our side. I'm talking liberal MPs that are supposed to be siding with him. I see that. And they bring me into, into like the green rooms where he's going to be. And they would they say, don't say how you got in here. And then he would walk in. I'm like, I'm not going away. <laughs> I'm going to be everywhere until you take care of this. Well, he didn't. He didn't take it. And then the security would remove me. <laughs> but you know what's really funny? This is, this is kind of on the, on the topic, but not really. Um, 
I, I, I got to be careful here because I can't out anybody, but sure. um, I have a cousin uh, and her, her husband, his brother, so I guess her brother-in-law um, is part of Trudeau's security detail. I didn't know this. So they came and did Christmas in Dominican Republic and, and Nikki and myself, uh, Nikki's my fiance. She's my much sexier half. Uh, it's a low bar, but she really, she, she went way over it. <laughs> but uh, so we would do this Christmas thing where we, we have this village we kind of adopted. And every, every year on Christmas day, we'd show up. We bring roasted pigs, big giant, like three or four pigs. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and we, we'd feed everybody a Christmas dinner, like a Christmas meal. And then we had, we'd, we'd sneak in and we had people in the village that would get recon for us, sizes of all the children, ages and genders and stuff. So we'd bring gifts for everybody. We had this guy dressed as Santa Claus. We'd go to every house. There's a couple hundred people in this village, yeah. every house with gifts. And then not only would we give them a Christmas meal and gifts, we would supply them with groceries for the entire month of January. That's amazing. The whole month. So we, we would collect and we'd bring people in and, and it got to the point where 20 and 30 Canadians a year would fly down for their Christmas and do a vacation. And this would be the way they would bring their family and their kids would come. And it was like a real cool thing, right? I didn't know that this extended family member of mine was on Trudeau's detail. So there, my cousin calls me, she goes, we're in town. And it's like three or four days before Christmas. She goes, I'm at this bar. I'm like, oh, I'm just down the road. She goes, we're ordering up pictures. Come on over. So there's me, my cousin, her husband, and, and this guy. And she goes, and I was in a bad mood, man. I was in a pissy mood because I just had a run in with, with one of Trudeau's people. And, and I'm like, just cursing about this. And I'm calling just Trudeau everything, everything in the book. <laughs> and he goes, pleased to meet you. My name is dot, dot, dot. And I protect that asshole. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways, the, the funny part of that was he was, he was very professional. Like he didn't, you know, I was looking for trade secrets and stuff and all, he wasn't, he wasn't doing it, but, um, I took him and I, when we went to the village to do the gifts, I paired would lean with him as his translator. Yep. I'm like, smart move. I want you to go home and see exactly who your boss is fucking over. You, you can get to know her. So anyway, it was, it was cool, but I remember getting thrown out of the liberal lobby in the house of commons. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they got, you know, where the house of commons is at and they all, they all kind of argue back and forth with children behind each one. There's a green room. And they got drinks. They got like wine and beer and stuff back there and like wine and cheese and stuff going on. It's pretty cool. And if you see someone get up and leave question period and then come back, they probably went for a shot. Like they're, they're back yeah, there. No like shit. they're back there just doing their thing and they come back out again. But it's posh. Like it's nice. So I get snuck into the liberal lobbies and I'm talking with people and MPs had seen me on TV. And now this has been brought up at that point in the House of Commons three times. So they know the name. Like, why are MPs standing up and going, you know, bring with lean home? And who is this guy with this big ZZ top beard? You know, like, <laughs> and why is he in our, our green room? So, but MPs are coming up and they're going, man, I wish I could help you. Like, you can't, you know, and, and just get on, get on Hussein and get on Trudeau. And they start introducing. And, and then all of a sudden I see that Hussein spots me. And he is like, cause he's like, how do you not get behind this story? Like, honestly, it's, it's insane. You know, how do you not? And I, and I, I guess I should apologize because what I should have said before I jumped into that was the last three years were in DR Dominican Republic launched a legislation effectively 
a social cleansing of all the Haitians. So they said, all Haitians have to go. And they're rounding him up on the side of the road in trucks with cages on them and throwing them in like dogs. I watched an 18-year-old girl get beaten with the butt end of a rifle for no reason other than when, when this guy grabbed her from behind at 11 at night, she winced. Well, anyone would flinch, right? Of anyone course. would do it. Boom, butt end of the rifle in the back of her head. She's out. One guy grabs her ankles. One guy grabs her wrist, lopped her back. Just, at the, just ruthless. Man. Just like a sack of potatoes. That's, and it was just like, they just don't treat them like humans. Well, you guys were hiding there, weren't you guys right. bouncing so, from so, hotel to hotel? And- so when that happened and when that, that whole legislation happened, we realized that we were going to be a target. So we are now the target because I was on TV talking about Woodley's case. And now this went viral and it got back to Dominican authorities. Well, now everybody knows that we've got a Haitian daughter that we're hiding. And then the government of Ontario, the Department of Child and Family Services, called up the Dominican authorities and said, we're trying to help this family. They live at dot, 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 dot. come on. Nearly got me killed. They nearly got me killed. Are you fucking kidding? Yeah, and they gave it up. And and I I, I record my every conversation. Like there's a, every phone call is recorded on this thing. Everyone, because when I start dealing with politicians, well, you got to record your calls, yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. they're going to lie. It's not <laughs> if, it's when. And, and so I start, so anyways, so they gave up our location. So all of a sudden, there's cops everywhere. So they, they started, you know, kind of closing in on us. So yeah, we had to move. Every month we change our location. We change our car. We lean was in school under a fake name. Like it was just all this weird shit yeah, we had to do. How about, don't mean to cut you off, but like, How's Woodleen dealing with all this shit, man? Like, I mean, just for a kid to to have to look over his shoulder every fucking day, like, the we, stress uh, must have been insane. We did our best to create the most... I was trying to keep that quiet, and then you just uh, cracking no, hard. We're, we're, I'm like, cheers. Cheers, man. Cheers. We're I'm, I'm trying to be quiet, cracking open this beer, and you like just pop. I'm like, oh, well, I <laughs> yeah. guess this is all right. Yeah. It's all good. We did our best to create the most normal life around with that we could. And she didn't know this till we got to Canada. It's things that I did. Uh, if I couldn't be there, like I would be in the country, but sometimes I have to leave for two or three weeks at a time. I had medical issues. I was having surgeries, stress hormones in my body was yeah. growing tumors in my stomach. Like it was bad. Like I thought I was going to die a couple of times. Um, and cause it, the stress is a fucking killer. I, people don't realize what stress can do to your body. Like it can kill you. And, um, and my, my doctor, a specialist, he looked at me and we did all these tests and he goes, I said, what's the scoop? And he said, well, um, how do I put this politely? Let's say if I was trying to grow cancer, your body's where I'd start to be successful because of all the stress hormones going on. He's like, that's where I'd start. That's the best place I could grow it. Yeah. So, and you know, I, I know it was hyperbole and he's trying to make a point, but the point was well taken. The point is that we had to be out of the country a lot. So um, when I couldn't be there, I had a guy and he's an, he was an undercover cop by day and he was my go-to guy <laughs> by night. I would pay this guy to follow would lean at a distance. She never knew he was ever there because he's Dominican. He just blends in, right? Smart. Dominican guy wearing a baseball cap, carrying a 50 cal in his pocket. And if anyone went near her, this, this guy's like 6'5", 300 pounds. Like, he looked like a big, you know, like a wrestler. But he was a very well-armed individual and well-capable. And 
well compensated. <laughs> Let me tell you, sure. because he knew that at any point, and I knew that at any point, he's Dominican. He could go to Dominican authorities and go, hey, I know where there's a Haitian, high value Haitian, and he could rat us out. So I had to make sure that I was paying him more than they were going to pay him. I tell you what, that was that was not easy, but uh, it had to be done because of course I, I remember times uh, I was I remember sitting in in Kingsville, Ontario, where we lived. We bought the house. That's where we stay, and we come back to Canada. I was sitting in my office there, and my my WhatsApp would go off. I look, and it's this 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 cop Martinez, military guy. I'm not giving him away because half the people I know in the military there are named Martinez. <laughs> so I'm, I'm good. It's like saying, Jose. Oh, no, I didn't give up his, his identity. He's yeah, good. Good luck he's, trying to find He's good. <laughs> um, it says Martinez. And he goes, do not let your daughter go to school today. They're doing a sweep. Dude, if this guy didn't, like, he saved her life a dozen times. Because he would, he would tip, tip his hand, you know, and say, listen, don't, don't let her, don't let her go or, or, or keep her on this side of town or do this or do that. And he'd tell me where they were doing their secret sweeps so I could keep would lean away from those areas. And it was chess. And thank God they were playing checkers. Like, I mean, we, we had a lot of the advantages because we had access to capital. So if I had to pay someone for information, I could do it. Um, How long did this go for? Three years from 2017 to 2020. And uh, we launched a campaign 2017 in June. Uh, and it was, I, I reached out, I put a thing on Facebook saying, does any, anyone know your MP in Canada? Does anyone know your MP? That's it. If you know him personally, let me know. I, I really have a big request. That was it. And I got a bunch of responses and I start reaching out to these MPs. We met face to face with 72 members of parliament from all of the parties. Um, but, so I said that, so there's some context when I said that, you know, who wouldn't get behind the story? Well, yeah. that's the story. We were being hunted like wild dogs. That's the story. And the, the, there's a bigger issue. And the, the bigger issue is very difficult because it took me till maybe six months ago to even tell Woodleen some of the story. Um, some of it I've never told her. I might never, but... There, the the bigger issue that Nikki and I wrestled with that we couldn't tell her, and so we couldn't say publicly because we didn't want her to land on the information and be more afraid than she needed to be. We're trying to keep that fear on our shoulders, keep us sharp, but we want her to be a kid. We want her to yeah. be a teenager, go to the movies. So she would go to the movies, and I would go and sit outside the theater. We didn't leave the house, myself or Nikki, without at least two firearms. Like we just would imagine, imagine we're going to go out tonight and have a beer. Yeah. Imagine me going, Oh, I forgot my wallet and I better get my 45 and my 38 one in the boot. It's like your cell phone. Just it's like your cell more important than your cell phone. Can you imagine? And yeah. you, here's what I tell people and I'll come back to my other point, but we watch so much TV and there's guns and there's glorified, you know, and the cops and Jack Bauer from 24 and you're shooting from a mile away and you're hitting the guy between the eyes and all this crazy shit, right? It's not romantic. It's not romantic when you have to carry a gun to protect your kids. Like you had to get, I had to get every morning before I drive her to school and I had to put that thing in my pocket and I have to tell myself, I'd sit down and look in the mirror and go, if I have to point this at someone and shoot, then I will. I had to 
psych myself up because it's not natural to take a human life. It's not a thing you do. But if that person is about to take your child's life, well then see ya. Like all all bets are off now. Like I was trying to be civil, but I can't be anymore. Right. And, but to have to reconcile that in your mind is, is one of the most horrific things I've ever had to go through mentally myself, like personally, because that's easy to buy a gun from a dirty cop. Okay, well, now I own a gun. Oh, cool. You know, show your buddies. It's not that. It's not showing your buddies anymore when you have... I get it. You know, I get it. Let's go to the gravel pit and shoot Coors Light cans. But you need this fucking thing for a reason. And There's nothing glorious about it. Like, yeah. there's nothing glorious about it at all. So I had these guns. Like, I bought one for Nikki. It was small enough to go in her purse. I'm like, we got to go practice. And we got to tell yourself what I tell myself because a lot of times she brought would lean to school by herself you know, in the car. And if you hit a roadblock and you can't get away, now it's you versus them. Like, can you imagine that thought? So that that's where we, so we were carrying weapons everywhere we went. And what I didn't, didn't tell would lean was, and the reason we had, we really were, were militant. And that's the right word for this is because People were getting taken, and they were their goal was thirty thousand uh, deportations a month. But that's a big friggin' number. So the Dominican government went out and they bought thirty six school buses, like Bluebird school buses. Took out all the windows and retrofitted them with cages because it was the windows were too humane. I guess I don't know, not quite. Uh, you know, de-dignifying enough. I don't know. Like, did they not? Anyways. And they painted them black. And people were getting taken. One of the kids that worked at our cigar shop, we had a cigar shop, uh, you know, trying to earn some sort of living while we're down there trying to not die. One of the guys that worked at our cigar shop was taken. Well, we didn't worry about him. We knew they're going to take him. They're going to dump him off at the border. He's going to hitchhike back. We'll see him in three days. He's a 23-year-old kid, you know. He's going to make it. Can handle himself. Sure. Yeah. He can handle himself, and he's of no interest to these guys. You get a 14-year-old girl that looks like Woodleen, she's gone. We never see her again. They've got a – there's a channel. The police there have a channel to Venezuela and to Colombia, and they're gone for, for sex trafficking. That's where the good-looking young girls or boys are being taken in that age group, and you never see them again. So people would say, well, why are you making a big deal? Like if she gets taken, just follow the bus to the border and pick her up. Like you don't understand. She's not going to a uh, processing office. Yeah. That's not where she goes. No, she gets on a a, a rickety little uh, C310 you know, plane with 15 other little kids and she lands in Venezuela and nobody sees her again. That's that's her fate if we let them take her. So if they take her, they take me dead. That's it. That's the only way they get her. So I haven't I, I had that conversation with her for the first time like six months ago because it's like, how do you I didn't want her to think that way when she's living in the country. Of course. Yeah. She knew that she couldn't go near the cops. She knew that the cops were were against her. Um she got accosted once on the beach by a cop. Um and She's a smart kid. She got street smarts. So she, he basically tried to lure her back to his place is what was going on there. Um, he knew she was Haitian. He knew that she had family with no paperwork. He knew that he had something to hold over her. 
So she managed to get his last name off his tag and his initial, first initial, and a pretty good physical description of him. And then before she bolted, she said, if my dad finds you, he's going to kill you. And she ran away. (laughs) (laughs) Her dad found him, let me tell you. (laughs) Did you? Well, because she gave me a last name and a first initial. I call it chief of police who I bought my guns from. Like I'm a customer, <laughs> you know, like, <sighs> and I said, do you have a guy by the name of blankety blank? Yeah. He goes, yeah. Can you and I meet him for a burger? I need to talk to him. I talked to him. <laughs> yeah. He got, re- go? he got reassigned. He's somewhere else. Yeah. He's not there anymore. Um, you can't fucking trust anybody. Nobody, there, nobody. Like, like, uh-uh. did you even get a good night's sleep in those Three fucking years, no, man. never, never, never. Even uh, th- th- let me tell you how bad it was when we came back. It was like so. We came back in March. That July, uh, we go to we're like outside. I don't know what we're doing. It was July first. Somebody at like eight thirty at night. We're having the, we're having grass beers because we it was COVID, right? Like it was around the front yard, and our yeah. neighbors were having grass grass beers. We called them lawn beers. All of a sudden, it's like it was early. It wasn't midnight or nothing. Somebody sets off fireworks down the road, and everybody's like, "Oh, cool! Nikki and I hit the pavement." But like, because we just assume we're being shot at. That's our assumption is somebody just opened fire. Just That's fucking shell shock of it all. It's how conditioned we were. Well, like, I mean, now it explains that when you come back to Canada after yeah. all this, these last couple years. Man. I mean, you feel like you can settle in now, but all this emotional damage that you fucking dealt with—yeah, I, I mean, there's a there's there's a process. How how are you dealing with it in the present day now? I'd say we're only maybe last three four months feeling like we're human again. Like, uh, but we are there now. Like we're feeling it now. That's but it good. took us that year and a half, and every time we thought we thought we were good, and then we'd be like, "Yeah, I didn't sleep last night." Yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah, there was something I heard like a, it could have been like a friggin' possum or something. Right. But we just assumed someone was breaking in our house and they had an AK. That's our assumption. <laughs> like here we are. And this is wild because I told you about the school buses where they put the kids yeah. in and they're black. They paint them black. So we live in Kingsville, which is right near Leamington. I don't know if you know that area at all, but, uh, Peely Island, uh, we see it from our front yard. Okay. Um, so that's the tomato capital of the world. All the tomatoes, you know, there's the, these big tomato producers. There's the Mastronardis and the Moochies and all these companies, right? They make, they grow produce in greenhouses. Well, they have a lot of Mexican migrant workers that come in there. There's uh, 10, 12,000 in our town, Mexican migrant workers that work and they pick tomatoes and strawberries and whatever else. Cool. But they get picked up from their dorms where they live to be brought to the greenhouses where they work in black school buses. Oh my God. Uh, the first time I saw one, I, I I swerved into the ditch. I'm like, ah, they're coming. I'm like thinking like, holy shit, they're here. And and I just freaked out. But obviously that was, you know, a knee-jerk reaction and we're trying to work through it. But man. a lot of it came to a head. Um, so that was 2017 and 20. 19. So December, December 10th is a very um, distinct day. I was sick. I wasn't feeling very well. 
and uh, I think I got food poisoning or something, but we're staying at a different villa than because uh, we're changing every month, right? And we're freshly in this villa, and Nikki was going to bring Willie to school because I was just throwing up and stuff. It just wasn't good, and it was early, it was seven seven in the morning, I think seven thirty. And last second, I said, th- I said, Nah, I'm good. I, I can do it. So, uh, and I, I didn't, uh, for whatever reason, I just rushed out the door. I didn't bring any any firearms, any any weapons. Don't think about it. It's been a couple of months where they've been pretty kind of tame. You know, they've been other parts of the country collecting people. So we hadn't seen them for a bit. So, ah, whatever. I thought about it. I'm like, nah, I'll be fine. So we're driving and I'm distracted. I'm changing the radio station or talking to Woodley and she's getting ready for school. And we're driving up and traffic's slowing down. And I look and Woodley looks and there was a like a, a bigger vehicle in front of us, so we couldn't see what was going on. And she goes, is, is that a roadblock? And I'm thinking, I don't think so. It didn't look like a roadblock because we were being blocked by like a dump truck or something. So I get around. And as we get closer, I wasn't wearing my glasses. And I said, does that say Department de Migration, which is the migration department? She goes, yup. And I'm like, oh, shit. And now, by now, we're we're too close. Like, you know, before you see it from ways off, you U-turn, you don't go to school today. Yeah. That's simple. We go home. Um, but now I'm like 50 feet away. And I'm like, I got traffic coming in behind me. And there's people that they're letting through this way, coming this way. I'm kind of pinned. So I get too close. I get way too close. Um, and I got traffic that are letting through. And I got traffic coming in the other way from, from behind me, pushing me. And I'm like, I got to make a U-turn. I'm like, hold on. So to lean. So I turn the car and I don't quite get it. I, I'm, there was a motorcycle on my right, so I couldn't go far enough to the right. So I come around and I can't make it in one cut. And they see that I'm turning around and I don't see, I'm trying to drive. I think, okay, it's a three-point turn. I back up and I'm, I'm good. And when lean screams and I'm like, to this day, like it still curdles my blood to imagine the sound, that sound when she screamed. And I look up and he's running at us. Now this dude's running at us and like shit. So I go in down into the ditch a little bit. I'm spitting grass and mud up and I'm in this little, little Honda, like front wheel driver. I'm like, I don't know if this thing's going to come out of this ditch. And I got to go out now. I don't have a weapon. And this guy's got a friggin', you know, M16 from the 1930s or something. So I come up out of the ditch. And I'm like, oh, I came out of the And I, now I'm looking, just oncoming traffic. Fuck am I going to do? So I, I go all the way to the other side of the road into the ditch on that side. And there's motorcycles. These mopeds are everywhere. They're coming in. And I'm like, I got to run them over. I got I to gotta just go. They're going to have to get out of my way. Like, I'm, I'm taking the right of way here. Yeah. And I floor it. Now, this guy's 10, 15 feet away from our car. And I'm like, he's got, he can catch us. He's got to see that I am stuck. He has to see that I can't accelerate fast enough. But he stops running. And I'm like, I'm looking in the rear mirror. I'm like, he's going to shoot. Yeah. He stops and he shoulders his gun. I'm like, fuck. Now what do I do? So I grab Woodleen, I throw her kind of down on my lap, like, so she's in front of me, yeah. and I floor it, and I just floor it right at these mopeds, and their guys are jumping off the bikes, and they're just taking off, they're peeling off, and he, he and what I saw that was distinct to me, and that really, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of solidified or, or cauterized in my mind how bad this really was. I knew it was bad, but when he shouldered his, his weapon, I was close enough that I could see that he wasn't aiming at me. He was aiming at her. Oh my God. You'd think, okay, let's get in his mind the 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 rich white guy that's harboring Haitians because yeah. I'd already gotten busted a bunch of times for hiding Haitians in our cigar <laughs> shop that were walking the street when the raids would happen. I'd fill my cigar shop and close the door, right? Uh, so he knew what I was up to, um, and I'm like, he very clearly aimed at her. I'm like, how? Okay, yeah, it's your job or whatever, but how deplorable of a human being are you right. that you're willing to take an automatic weapon and point it at a child? A kid. And feel okay about that. Like you're doing your job. Exactly. Like, oh, I really did a hard day today. I really did my time. You know, I punched a clock. Are you freaking kidding me? Like, and I thought, I need to just throw this thing in reverse and run this asshole over. But then there's, there's 50 other of him with more weapons. I, I can't win this one. So I kept going. And he he saw that I was going through the bikes and he stopped. When it, when I threw it, leaned down to my knees, he wasn't interested in shooting me. He pulled his gun back down. He ran back and his buddy came and met him on a, on a motorcycle and then another two on another motorcycle and they chased us. So now I'm in this shitty ass car. I'm booking it and they're on these dirt bikes and they're coming behind me. Now, luckily, by the time they both got on their bikes and came at me, I was probably doing 100 kilometers an hour. So I thought they're not going to catch me within at least the first mile or two because yeah. these bikes are garbage. Uh, and I'm now I'm flooring. I'm going now. And now I'm up to like 180. Like I'm booking it, right? And there was a, a big turn coming up. And I thought if I can get around the turn before they do, then I can cut into the next little community, tuck in behind the pizza place. And they'll maybe maybe they'll assume I kept going straight down the highway. If they turn in, then I'm I, here we are. I'll send would lean off, you know, run to the bush and I'll just take them on if I had to and I'll lose, but she'll get away. Um so I pull in behind the pizza joint and I wait and I stick my head around some boom, boom. I see the bikes go and they're, they're like, they're going like they're GI Joe style, right? They're going after me. So we ended up ditching the car so they could never come back and canvas the neighborhood and find this car by our house. So we ditched the car and walked home. Um, walked home. Yeah. And that's a risk in itself. Man. But at least we knew they were going that way and we were going yeah, this way. True. So we had a little bit of time. Um, and it was like a side street. So we walked home. I got wooden lean there. I called up my buddies who were like ex military. I had a lot of, you know, I, I built the right friends down there for a situation. I said, it's on. Yeah. They picked me up and I'm talking, I mean, you got to see the back of this dude's truck, man. He shows up at my house like 10 minutes later and it was like, <laughs> oh my God. Like this is like a Duck dynasty and GI Joe had a baby. <laughs> like this, this thing showed up. I'm like, oh, we're doing this. Okay. He goes, where's the roadblock? And I told him, we just take it. There's just three of us, like rednecks. It was unbelievable. And we're going, and they had already left. Maybe it's for the good, because if we would have got, honestly, like these two buddies of mine and me as angry as I was at the time, it was going to be like an Oka standoff and we were going to lose eventually, but maybe we weren't because these guys have like RPGs and stuff. I mean, these guys are redneck Americans, right? I would imagine at that point too, you're at your fucking wits end. Like I've been patient. I've turned the other yeah. cheek. Yeah. I could imagine you just salivating at the moment yeah. to, to get Mow some them all down. Just, just let's guys. go in and just create a bloodbath and just make an example. Ugh. So it's probably better. They were gone. Of course we went back. And, uh, but that day is like, that was too close. Like that was, and we went two and a half years of never coming that close. 
being very careful. And I was, I, I was careless one time and that's, that's how close we got to losing her to trafficking or losing her to a a gunshot wound. Like what was it going to be? And, and I, I came back and I got on the phone with every politician, with everybody that was helping us. I'm like, you guys are all fucking assholes. Don't tell me to wait another day. Don't, don't put me on hold. Cause l- listen, if I sent someone to your house right now with an automatic weapon and said, point at that guy's daughter's head, you'd move, you would do something. So do it today. Do it now. And oh, well, let me get back to you. And it was like, Holy fuck. <sighs> we, I mean, the was, government really fucking dropped the ball on this, man. Oh man. They like, sucked it's, so it, bad. It's so, well, it was so bad. Like, and and like what I don't understand is I got people on the inside of the liberal government, good people. Yeah. And they were pissed when they heard this. They're like, they, they're offering to send us money to help us, you know, find better shelter. We actually went to an all-inclusive. We found an all-inclusive. I'm, I'm no Brian Mello. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no one special. But, I'm no one special. But I, I do play a guitar and sing a song once in a while. So there's a, nice. there's a, there's a, there's a chain of hotels that have me on their list of entertainment. Yeah. And, nice. and anytime that we want to go for a free vacation, as long as I play for an hour a night, they'll put us all up for free. So we just quickly called and said, listen, you got an opening? Yeah. We're coming. We're coming in hot. <laughs> we need you to take us in and let nobody else near us. And we're, you know, no authorities. Like, yeah, you're safe here. You're good. So we went and I performed for eight days and we just relaxed for eight days. Yeah. Because um, we had to get off the grid. We had to, because they were looking now. They were looking for us actively. What do you do, right? Like you got to just, and they're not going to come on the all-inclusive. They don't think for a minute. We drove six hours to the all-inclusive. We left at three in the morning and uh, we had... I, the things that we had in our car that would protect us if we hit another roadblock on that drive, I'd still be in jail. I'd be in jail all my life, probably. <laughs> like no the, the, of what you got to do, right? So, um, so we got there and and the, let the dust settle a little bit, and then they moved on to another part of the country. So we snuck back, and um, and that was December tenth of twenty nineteen, and we came home March of um of twenty twenty. Yeah, so. Funny enough, another global. Did like, something else happen in March of 2020? Yeah, uh, yeah, I heard. I heard something <laughs> happen in the news there, but you know the the Haitian the Haitian earthquake hits, and that kind of just demolishes any momentum that you had to to bring your daughter home. Yeah, and then the pandemic hits. Yep, and it's a different type of you know global uh, tragedy that's happening throughout the world. But in a sense, that actually helped you bring your daughter home. And, it was the bookend. Yeah, it, did, yeah, it actually did it. So what most people don't understand, the last 72 hours we spent in Dominican Republic, it's shocking to say the least. We So from the time of, of the, the almost, the roadblock capture, almost capture, um, we, had, we had gone to federal court. So the Federal Court of Appeals, which is basically the Supreme Court for when you appeal a case, it's the highest court you can take it to. Um, it's $30,000 just to put the piece of paper on the table and say, I'm coming to court. You know, like, so we had an immigration file that they denied and we believed that they tampered with the file. We believed that they, they changed information and denied it falsely. Um, 
we didn't believe that through some erroneous conspiracy theory. We believed it because we have proof. So the minister of immigration at the time was Ahmed Hussein. Um, he, he's not the minister of immigration anymore. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, he is quoted by his chief of staff, who the next day was his former chief of staff, as saying, I don't like the optics of a white family rescuing a black child. Are you fucking kidding me? Said it. He's from Somalia, for fuck's sake. Like, this guy immigrated to Canada. You'd think he'd say, wow, what a great story. Right. Let me help them. Maybe they can help more kids, and maybe we can do a whole thing where we help kids. Oh, no. No, he's the gatekeeper. (sighs) How do do these fucking people get elected, man? Because our system is flawed. He gets elected because he's from Somalia and he's in a riding where everyone in the riding is from Somalia. That's how he gets elected. <laughs> it's simple. And so anyhow, he, it came down like this. Lena is stateless. She has no country to call her own. So we were working on Dominican paperwork. Dominicans said no, no one of Haitian descent can have paperwork here. Haiti says, well, she was actually born in Dominican Republic, so she can't have paperwork here. So she's stateless. Well, you can't be stateless. You're not allowed to be. It's against the law to be stateless, but yet there's 400 million stateless people in the world today. Probably more because how do you count them? Because they're stateless. Exactly. You can't count them. That's the UN says there's 400 million. I'm like, well, UN, how do you count people that don't exist? Like, I mean, really, honestly, there could be a billion. We don't say, know. Let's double that just to be modest. Let's right. We don't know. Yeah. How do you know? So um, there's a, the UN, um, Convention on the Eradication of Statelessness, Canada is a signatory country. So is Dominican Republic. So is Haiti. Well, this is simple to me. There's eight international treaties that all three countries have signed. Uh, to name a couple. The, the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child. Convention on Statelessness. The Convention on the Rights of Refugees. I mean, I could go on forever. There's eight that I presented. I distilled them in a, in a short paper for an assistant to Justin Trudeau. I said, here's why you legally have to bring Woodlean to Canada. You have to, you actually obligate it to, you're not, this is not something you get to choose. You are obligated or take Canada off the list of signatory countries. If you're not going to do it, you can't sign the, the document. He came back to me. I'm not kidding you. You can't make this up. Honestly, I'm so happy. I get to say this publicly. He said, I don't think the prime minister is going to understand the document you wrote. Can you, I'm like, are you asking me to dumb it down for the Are prime minister? And he said, I'm asking you to dumb it down for the prime minister. <laughs> I'm so happy. Listen, in this entire dark time of my life, that might've been the highlight for me. I'm like, <laughs> Cause I've oh always said he's God. dumb. But, so anyway, we, we do it and I give the paper to them. And because she's stateless, Ahmed Hussein as the minister of immigration has an obligation because she's a stateless individual in the primary care of Canadian citizens that makes her Canada's problem. Some lawyer in the immigration office said to Ahmed Hussein, you want to get this Vaden Earl guy off your ass? Validate her, her Haitian passport, like get Haiti to recognize her. Then she's Haitian. She's not stateless. She's Haiti's problem. But you know how to bring her to Canada. And he was so motivated to not help bring her to Canada. He went, and there's a, there's a passport floating around with Woodleen's name on it. It's fake. He got the Haitian authorities to certify it as real. Making her Haitian, meaning she's not stateless, meaning she's not his problem. Do you know what he paid for that? 
500 bucks. Do you know how I know? Because I know the lady he paid. She went on record saying, yeah, that guy. I mean, not him, but one of his guys said, yeah, "Yeah, I need that document to be made real. I said, is it real? She said, I'm recording all this, of course. I record everything. (laughs) She goes, of course it's not real. It's fake. There's like 10 things wrong with it. I'm like, I won't say her name. I'm like, do you know? And we're having a beer. I'm like, do you know how I know it's fake? She goes, how do you know it's fake? I'm like, because I faked it. It was me that paid for it in the first place to keep her safe on the road. Unbelievable. I paid money to get a dude who was pretty good with a printer, <laughs> like yeah. pretty good on the dark web to make a fake Haitian passport to keep her safe when we had to travel into Haiti and do all the stuff. I got the document. I know it's fake. I know every word that's, I paid for it. So don't tell me in the Supreme Court that it's real. Cause I'm the guy that faked it. Like, no I mean, shit. so Ahmed Hussein doubles down and says, and it goes on record, perjures himself in, in, in the court, federal court saying, no, 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 it's been certified as real. And, um, and we, we made him sign it. He signed an affidavit saying it's certified as real. This guy's in a lot of trouble when I sue him, which will come. So he certifies it as real. So I'm on record every time I went on TV, on the radio, hundreds of times, national TV, CBC, CTV, all of them. Yeah, you were everywhere. Everywhere. And I, I made sure. I'm like, there's a, fa- there's a fake passport that our government is saying is real, so they don't want to deal with her. And I, I, I was relentless. I would not ever say it was real. It was fake. I know it was fake. It's fake. <laughs> so- Fast forwarding to to uh, federal court of appeals. Normally, when you appeal, uh, you get a ruling in forty five minutes. The, the judge walks out and says, I, "I'm ruling with the government. I'm ruling with the family. That's it." And somebody claps and somebody walks away, going, "We'll live the fight another day." That's it. Uh, we had the best lawyer in the country for this, the best one, and. We put so much money into this court case and into all the discovery. There's 33,000 pages. of 33,000 pages? Yeah, on her file. And our lawyer was so good that, do you know what an A-tip is? Access to information. So you pay five bucks and you could, if you have a file in the Canadian government, you could say, I want everything that's ever been said via email or phone conversations in the Canadian government about Brian Mello. You pay five bucks and they'll send it to you. But they'll redact all the important shit, right? Okay. So our lawyer has been doing this for a long time and he knows they're going to redact everything incriminating, but they've only got four people doing that. So he gets him and three associates to submit a tips for the same file at the exact same time. And they have to produce it within a certain amount of time. Well, one guy's redacting one thing. Well, the other guy might miss one word and redact a different word. Counting on the fact that you take all four overlay, then you might get a more full picture. We did. We got the full picture. There was a guy in Mexico communicating. The Mexican embassy is the one that handles North American immigration for Haiti. Um, He was communicating with Hussein's office in Ottawa. And in the email, he says, I don't think the family is going to go for what we're trying to do. So we might have to go with plan B. All this in this giant conspiracy to keep the 14 year old out of the country. What the fuck is their motivation? I think, honestly, I think when I went at him on, on national TV, I really made him look it stupid. Got personal. I, well, because I, I, I called him out on a, on a specific policy, and I said, "Well, it's your policy to, you know, produce a da 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 in whatever days." He goes, "Yes." I'm like, "No, it's not," and you should know it. Like I called, like I, I roped him into getting his own policy wrong, yeah. and then called him on TV, and the cameras were running. He was pissed, so he was doing everything. Plus, he didn't like the fact that I was white. That was a problem for him. 
with a black daughter. So anyways, they said, uh, you know, the, the document's real. The passport's real. It's real. It's real. So we went to federal court and the judge comes out and I was like, oh, this could go either way. And our, our lawyer's like, I, I don't even have a sense. They like, they're supposed to be um, like this separation of powers, right? The government can't choose the judge. They did. They handpicked the worst judge, the judge that's the most against immigration, you know, like you can imagine. I'm like, we're so screwed. Yeah. And, uh, and cause, because our lawyer said to me, what you, who, the one you don't want is this name. And it gets announced. I'm like, oh, it's the one he said we don't want. I'm like, we're so screwed. And the day of the, the ruling, the lawyer calls me. He goes, we didn't get a ruling. I'm like, what do you mean we didn't get a ruling? He goes, he wants more time. He said, I'm going to need 30 days. I'm like, 30 days? During that 30 days, we had the incident with the, you know, the roadblock. I'm like, I'm really angry now, right? 30 days. That's usually 45 minutes. So after 30 days, he releases a 13-page document. It's all public record. Like anyone could Google it and read it right now. Yeah. And it was, not only did we win, we won, but the 13 pages were about how fucked up this government is on this file and how it's become a ridiculous witch hunt and how this little girl needs to be in Canada with her family and should have been a long time ago. And this government is robbing her of her childhood. Like, I mean, he went at their throats. And this is the bad judge. Right. Yeah. This is how far this government has strayed. That the judge that we expected was going to rule the other way went, no, this is off the charts. Wrong. This is just wrong. Wow. I think he used the word morally reprehensible. Like, I mean, it was like he used strong language. Um, he, the one theory, uh, he said, <laughs> I forget what it was, but one of the theories that the Minister of Immigration had that we shouldn't have allowed her into Canada. He goes, this is a, at best a straw man theory. Like, I mean, he was using like hyperbole. Like, this is how far this judge went. So we got, we now we got a ruling. I was in Haiti in Port-au-Prince with W5 shooting a documentary when the ruling came in. Really? I was standing in front of the building where all the records were lost when we got the ruling. I'm like, well, this is cool. We take the ruling back to the federal government. They said, nah, we're, we need to wait. I don't think you have that option. I think the federal court just said, you got to do it now. Yeah. And the new minister of immigration, Marco um, Mendicino, yeah, and I saw you had a couple run run ins. Yeah, he ran well. from us, man. I yeah. locked him in a hotel room, wouldn't let him out until he met with me. Like I stood in front of the door, and they brought in hotel security. He's like three of these guys. I'm like, guys, I don't think you want to do this. Like you're outnumbered. Yeah. They're like, well, it's one of you and three of us. I'm like, like I said, you're outnumbered because like, <laughs> I'm a father who's really pissed. You're just getting your 15 bucks an hour, so I don't think you, you want to do this. Yeah. Um. Anyways, he, we had the meeting, and he just said to me, like, you got to let the process be the process. I'm like, the process almost got us killed. The process is no good. And um, so he was adamant that due process, due process. So we go back to DR and then COVID happens. And everyone, every Canadian will probably remember that first press conference when Trudeau said, you know, all the different, if you're a Canadian traveling abroad, it's time to come home. And, I, of course. Right? But he listed a bunch of <clears throat> exceptions to the normal immigration rules none of them applied to us because he said if you're if your children you know your children who might not have Canadian citizenships they need to come with you they didn't recognize with lean's adoption so they didn't recognize her as our child as our child yeah. so he 
this is where it gets crazy. This is the last 72 hours, and I, I apologize if I'm long-winded about no, this story, no, but no, this please. right here is, this is where they played checkers, we played chess, and this is where we checkmated them, and it's, I think, we were we were thinking it was going to be some, like, Navy SEALs extraction and cover of darkness and all this stuff. This is more dramatic than that could have ever been, because... The government's lies and their deceit is what ultimately put the noose around their own neck. It's beautiful. It was, it's a work of art because we were not willing to compromise on our stance. This is morally correct. You have to bring her to Canada. She's a, she's a stateless child in the care of Canadian citizens. You have to do it. There's eight documents that say you have to do it. And I'm not going to lie and tell you that that document, that, that fake document's real. I'm not going to do it. It's fake. And we just would, even though, they were kind of like, well, if you say this is, you know, no, no, I don't trust you guys. There's no quid pro yeah. quo with this government. So Trudeau announces this thing. And the next day I get a funny ringtone on my phone. Like I'd never heard before. I grab it. And it's a lady that had called me a couple of times before. And she worked inside the government. And I can't even say what department because she will lose her job. And if I know the way these guys operate, she might accidentally get the brake lines cut in her car too. Like this, these guys are assholes. Um, she calls me and it's this weird ringtone, this weird scrambled number, like weird. I'm like, what is going on? I answer the phone. She goes, I'm calling you from an encrypted service. I'm like, what? Cool. You know, like spice, you know, like it's kind of, <laughs> she goes, listen, you gotta listen. And I gotta be really quick. I'm calling you like this. This is my husband's phone and it's got a scrambler something software or whatever. Because if I print or save the the thing that's on my screen on my computer right now, I'll go to jail for sharing it with you. So I'm going to hang up. I'm going to take a photo on this phone. It's going to come to you and there's going to be a code and this is the code you need to open the photo. Take the photo, bring it to your MP that's been helping you the liberal and um, I can say it's Scott Sims. He's not even an MP anymore, but he's the liberal MP that went to the point where he, he was probably about to get asked to leave the caucus over his support of us. Um, he's the real deal and uh, take it to Scott and he'll know what to do. So the document comes in and it's since I'm reading it and she calls me back and it's, and it's, it's an exemption for COVID and she said, Trudeau didn't mention this one because of you. I'm like, why are they so because bent on, on not letting this kid into Canada? What is their problem? But she's like, you guys have done so much damage to them reputationally. They don't want to help you. I'm like, yeah, it's not, personal now. they're not helping me. They're punishing a 14-year-old innocent daughter because I'm a prick. Okay, like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, she goes, yeah, it's because of you. This didn't get mentioned publicly. And it's a CBSA exemption. So it's not even immigration. It's Canadian Border Services. And it says that if you have a dependent, that dependent can also come to Canada. There you go. For COVID. So I'm like, this is it. She's a dependent. She depends on us. We called up. So Scott went to work. Scott's team. This is after hours. He called them all in. They came back to the office, man. All hands on deck. And this is like late at night in Ottawa. These like these, I'm talking to like these receptionists and stuff. They're all doing research. They're calling people at CBSA. CBSA said, yeah, this is what we need. They gave me a checklist of like 40 things to prove she's a dependent. Pictures of her at school, birthday parties, like stuff to prove, you know, easy, yeah. easy. Go to my Facebook. It's all there. So we did it. Yeah, 
They certified, yes, she's a dependent. They issued a letter. We approve her entry to Canada. Cool. Now, there needs to be a visa generated. Okay. We'll have the visa sent to the embassy. All right. She needs a travel document, passport. I'm like, got one, but it's kind of fake. <laughs> it's just a little bit fake. It's not a lot fake. It's a little fake. And they said, um, we're going to leave that with you to figure out. The visa will be at the embassy. I'm like, she's got a visa oh, coming to the embassy, but I don't have a passport. So I get a call from the ambassador who we know quite well. She goes, I got a visa for Widlene. I'm like, I know. She goes, I know your passport's fake because we're, we're friends. We know each other, right? Yeah. I'm like, I do too. What are you going to do about it? She goes, I can't knowingly stick a visa and a fake passport. Like that's all kinds of illegal. Yeah. So she says, no, I won't do it. So I hang up the phone and I'm like, we're so close to the finish line. There's only one flight left. The last rescue flight. It's a rescue flight. It's operated by Air Transat. It's going from Porta Plata to, to Montreal. And there's 700 Canadians lined up at the airport to get a seat on it. The embassy has held seats for us because they got the notice that their visa is coming, but now we don't have a passport. They're going to give the seats to somebody else. I'm like, I'm laying there and Nikki and I are talking. We're like, how do we do this? And then we're like, wait a minute. It's fake. You know, it's fake. I know it's fake. The ambassador knows it's fake, but her boss, the minister of immigration is on record in federal court saying it's real. Okay. So the chain of command for her isn't to listen to me. I'm saying it's fake. You got to listen to your boss and let you want to document that he signed stamped by a federal court where he said it's real. Unbelievable. Your fucking lie got wouldn't lean home. (laughs) So she's like, wait, Hussein certified as real. I'm like, yes, he did. I got no problem with that. Oh my God. So not only did they, they, cause they, we, now we're going to drive four hours there and far as back to get this. She goes, no, we're going to have it delivered to the airport. You go to the airport <laughs> and, and nobody wants scrutiny on this pass. Like, you know, so she's good, but it's got a beep, you know, when it goes through, yeah. it's got to do it. What passports do. And a Dominican who, hates Haitians and wants to make their life miserable is now going to look at a Haitian passport and go, oh yes, you can go ahead for your better life stamp. So we still have problems. We got to make this happen along the way. And she goes, I'm sending you a diplomatic escort to travel with you with his diplomatic passport. So Nikki goes through with Luther. I go through. And then when Woodline goes through and as soon as they grab her passport, he goes, she's with me and holds up his diplomatic passport. They're like, oh, well, and wow. like seven different points where they're right through, right through. And we're getting through. We're up and um, we're in the boarding lounge. We're getting ready to go on the flight. And then we're on the flight and everyone's happy. And I'm like, yeah, we still got to clear Montreal though. And they're a little more stringent. Like you can't just wave somebody through. And I'm like, I'm nervous because now I'm thinking this is the last flight. What are they going to do? They can't send her back. They can't deport her, but they can put her in a holding cell and they can put me in jail for child trafficking if they don't buy this story. 
So I'm like, oh, I'm nervous. Maybe I didn't need to be, but I was until we're driving yeah. away. I don't blame you. I'm freaking out, right? So we get in and uh there's this guy. Now remember, this is a repatriation flight. So immigration isn't open. Except there's one immigrant coming to the country and they know in advance, they know her name, they know the story. So they got to put a call, four in the morning. They got to put a call out for some two staffers to come in and staff one immigration booth in the airport, you know, get some overtime because there's one kid's coming in to be a pain in the ass. I'm like, Oh, great. So now they're bringing these guys in. They're already in a bad mood because it's four in the morning and they're coming in just for one file. I'm thinking this is going to be, they're going to be just dicks. Right. So we get in and there's this guy and he's like, this tall guy and he's just smiling from ear to ear. He goes, you must be the Earl family. I'm like, wow. Yeah. We've been expecting you. You must be with lean. I've heard a lot about you. And I'm like, why is this guy so happy? It's freaking me out a little bit. Like, you know, it's four in the morning. Nobody's this happy. He's got something to hide. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so <laughs> suspicious. So we go through and he take, he goes, uh, we got to take some photos with lean. You're gonna have to come with us. I'm like, here it uh, is. I look at Nikki. I'm like, we got to trust. We got a diplomatic escort. She's not going to, he can help us if, you know, so she goes, and she comes back. I'm like, what happened? She took my photos. Like they said, I'm like, I mean, I'm just freaking out. Right? I'm sweating blood. So anyhow, he's so happy. And he's like, he's going da, 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 stamping. He's not even looking at stuff. He's just stamp, 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 stamp. And then he goes, um, we took the liberty of generating a student visa. So, uh, that we're going to courier that copy to you. It'll probably get to your house in Kingsville before you do. Who is this guy? Right. Right. Now I'm thinking he's an angel or something. You're like, <laughs> what is going on? It's a twilight zone. So, and he's just smiling and he goes, welcome to Canada. Shakes with lean's hand. We walk through and we're waiting for our Uber. So we're eating this pita because pita pit was open late for the flight in the airport. We're eating a pita and my, I get a text message. And it's from a girl that worked at our cigar lounge three years prior in Texas. Congratulations. I hear Woodleans in Canada. I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, we, cause we're trying to keep this off social media. We're trying to keep it under wraps. We don't want anything to go wrong. Of course. Because if, if Marco minister of immigration spots it, he'll lay the clamps down on us. And even it, Scott is like, let me know when you're in Ontario. When everything's over, I will call Marco myself. I yeah. want to tell him. You know, you really want to sure. let him know, right? So sure. we're doing this thing and I'm like, oh man, something's wrong. Why? How would she know? She's not even in DR anymore. She's living back in Canada. I thought she's living in Ottawa. It turns out she's living in Montreal. I, I just messaged her right back. I'm like, how did you know we're in Canada? She said, that guy working immigration doing the overtime is my husband. Oh, come on. He had been supporting the campaign, knew the whole story. When they came up for an overtime shift, he's like, I'll take that one. Thank you. So if there was any little glitch, anything that could have been caught by someone scrutinizing that passport, there's no chance. He's like, there's no way he's not putting her in Canada in an Uber. So like to the very last second, like the serendipity is like, oh my God, like she's here. No one's stopping this, you know? And just to me, the moral of the whole thing, like we stayed true to the story. We didn't, the, the Trudeau camp tried to make us, tried to bribe us into saying things that weren't the way they were to cut corners. Meanwhile, they're trying to rope us into perjuring ourselves and discrediting our story. We never did. But Ahmed Hussein went on record with a lie that he paid for. And that lie got us home. 
if the irony oh in that, it's beautiful it's just beautiful and the craziness is if if that weren't the case if we missed that last flight by any of those i mean so many variables have to come together if we missed it then they took all immigration files that weren't resolved and they added four years they tacked on four years for covid just we're delaying for we still wouldn't have had our file reopened yet oh my god Woodleen would have been 19 years old before they even opened the file again. And you met her, this started when she was four. Yeah, yeah, we adopted her at four. So here she is, and we're back. And <laughs> like from, from having guns pointed at us, I can't tell you how many guns, not, not my own, but other people's guns stuck in my mouth. Yeah, I got a beat down from four cops, tried to get her location. They broke a couple of ribs, chipped a few teeth. Like we had our, our shop raided. We had them come in and, and, and steal all our stuff. We had them arrest me in the airport. We had all this stuff happen and just harassment and, and would lean having to go through this shadow over her shoulder for all those years. And it all ended because a Canadian government official made it personal and tra- decided to win it with a lie. <laughs> like honestly, Karma's it's like a bitch, man. beautiful man. It's Karma crazy. is a bitch. It's a bigger bitch when we go to court with them because yeah. we we have thirty three thousand pages there you go. of written lies. Forget the ones recorded on my phone. We've got written ones. We've got emails back and forth where they're like, let's try and do this. Let's try and do that. Maybe this will work. Maybe they'll shut them up this way. Maybe we can do this and they'll keep rid of the country. Like, what is the matter with you guys? And that's the way they were doing it. And I, I don't know why. Uh, I don't know how a human can get so far astray from their moral compass that any amount of personal beef would allow them to abuse a child. Right. Like, honestly. Because, I mean, I can stray. You know, like, I can be like... I got a beef. I got a vendetta. I'm going to get that guy who cut me off in the Wendy's parking lot or whatever, you know, sure, like sure. I'm going to get him no matter what. And, and then all of a sudden I go and I'm going to get him and he's got a little kid in the car with him. I'm like, Oh, what a cute kid. You know, it's all, it's done. It's brings, over. Brings it back. To yeah. Your forget sensor, it. You're right? back. Right. And for someone to go over the top, knowing that they put the barrel of a gun in front of a child's head and be okay with that. I don't know. I don't get it. I can't figure it out. And we put so much faith in our government. I remember back, you know, back in the day, it's like the Canadian government could do no wrong for a lot of people. And yeah. you're seeing that ugly face show itself a little bit more and yeah. more, especially through crisis. Yeah. Um, I'm just glad that there's a happy ending yeah. to the story. I can't wait to meet with Lean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, man, it's just, it's, it's. It's an unbelievable tale, and uh, I could see this being in in the big screen one day. Yeah, <laughs> as well, man. It's yep. just, it's just, um, it, it's crazy. But um, you also, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, you also uh, have a new book coming out. Yeah, as well called uh, "Stateless: The Story Behind the Story." Well, that's there's a new title. <laughs> oh, really? A, yeah, yeah. There's a new. Oh, title. my mistake. Well, sorry, that book's coming out. No, but the one. Um, the one that we're going to release first is called Journey Through Hell. Journey Through Hell. Yeah, and that's the only because it sets the context for the stateless book. Um, so Journey Through Hell is the the hate the response to the, when we went to the Haiti earthquake. Yeah. When I saw the adoption center crash to the ground, and then all the things that we went through, and how that set the wheels in motion for the next ten years of us trying to get with lean home. And, and all the stuff that we saw in Haiti and how the, the fact that somehow 
millions and millions and millions in resources were put into getting 60 American survivors out of a supermarket and 300,000 plus Haitians died and couldn't get access to an excavator or a backhoe because the American government used them to get those Americans out of the supermarket, that kind of stuff. There's, there's the, that, the existential crisis that we face of why do we value you more than you because of where you were born? And we do. We do. We do. And it's, it's an ugly thing to say, but you know, one um, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Well, okay, this and I'm I'm not minimizing this, so I got to be very careful. The the Humboldt hockey team, you know, the crash. Yeah, it was tra- It was so tragic, and and Nikki and I are big hockey people. Like, so it just hit us. Like, it was very emotional. It was 14, I think, 14 or 16 people that died, yeah. and and it's it was horrible. And it was on the news and it, we, the whole country went into mourning as we should. And, you know, every day more than 3,000 people die of just hunger, just children in just Africa every day. There's no, there's nothing on television telling me about this. There's no mourning because there's not, they're not even a real, they're not real people. They're just numbers. They're just stats. Exactly. And that's why the first book, A Face Behind the Numbers, the whole motive of that first book was for me to try and humanize these statistics. And so we look at the Canadian life lost. We place a value on it. And it's a high value. Somehow, I don't know why, we can look at the African or Haitian life lost and it's not as valuable maybe. And that sounds like I'm talking my, down my nose to people. I'm not because we all do it. We all look at it differently. And it's terrible that we do. And I don't know how we stop. I don't, we got to figure out a way to, because in this age where information's everywhere, in the 80s, you could have, you know, okay, I'm a little older than you. Not as much as I thought. I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're going to be 40 soon. I'm going to be 40 really soon, yeah. I'm 46, so... I remember when the Ethiopian famine hit in 84, yeah. right? Also, Van Halen put out a great album that year as well. So, <laughs> um, But you, until it got on the TV, we just didn't know. We didn't know how bad it was. And by the time it made it to the TV, that ship had sailed. Like that country was dead. Yeah. So there was a bit of an excuse for ignorance back then. Not today. No. I, I can open up my cell phone and I can tell you how many people are dying of hunger, of famine, of AIDS, of whatever, COVID, or, you know, whatever, anywhere in the world, real time, in real time. Like, so there's no excuse to not know what we know. We know how bad the world is. We know how bad people have it in places that are less fortunate than ours. Why we don't give a shit is beyond me. I don't know. I don't understand why we can. And maybe it's not that we don't give a shit. Maybe we feel powerless. Maybe there's that. Maybe yeah. it's some of both. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of that too, but- Putting a face to the name, yeah, I think is is really th- that that hits the core of your soul, you know. Yeah, and I think if there's more people that instead of going to the all inclusives and going into in those vacations, actually getting out and and doing some you know some missionary work or some yeah. charitable work to uh, uh, to go and actually meet these communities, mm-hmm. I I think there would be a bigger impact and and there would be more change, you yeah. know. Um, 
But like you said, it's like there's so much bad news coming at us Mm -hmm. that there's this numbness that almost happens. And then a lot of us are looking for an escape of let me just, okay, that's, that's terrible. I know it's terrible, but let me just escape this. It just, it makes me feel too bad. Right. And it's, it's terrible to say that, but a a lot of us are guilty for that. And I think if, if we put a a name to those faces Mm -hmm. and actually met met those people, like you were able to do as horrible as it was, it opened up your eyes to like, wait a second, I can fucking, I can do something. Yeah, I'm yeah. one person, but I can do something. And yeah. look how much change you've actually made. Yeah, and imagine, one of the most, um, one of the best accomplishments that I'm proud of in my career of doing humanitarian work isn't what I've done personally, but there's, you know, in the 10,000 or so people that I was able to take to these countries, you know, through our organization, um, you, you touch people and you don't know, like you just don't know. You don't, you don't yeah. remember or what, you don't know what those kids went on to do. And when we started the bring with lean home campaign, when things got really desperate, I started getting calls. And one of my calls was from a, a, a this lady. She goes, I work, I'm a assistant to uh, someone in Ottawa. I can't remember it, be honest with you, but it was super high up, maybe a Senator. Or, I don't know. Anyways, um, maybe an MP, but she opened at the very beginning of the campaign, she opened some doors that were like massive, like got us in with some meetings that really changed the face of the campaign. And Nikki's like, how do you know her? Cause I got, I got like Facebook friends and followers and social media. I just, when I was public speaking full time, I would just get on stage and the last thing I'd say is, Oh, add me on Facebook, you know, it's, and it's like all these, yeah. you know, so I don't know. I don't know where these people come from. And so I couldn't remember. I just, it was 15 years. I couldn't remember where I knew her from. And, but I knew she was like kicking ass to help us out. Right. And finally I just had to suck up my pride and go, listen, how did we first meet? <laughs> like, I had to ask. Right. And she goes, I was on the first hero holiday trip. Wow. I'm like, are you kidding me? See that? So she was a kid that came along at 13 years old, went to Dominican Republic, was there at the garbage dump where I met with lean. And now she's working in Ottawa and she goes, yeah, I can, I can move some stuff around for See you. That? And it's like, we saw maybe dozens of those over the course of the three years. One kid calls me and says, I can try and help. I'm uh I'm working at the UN. <laughs> You're doing what? <laughs> yeah, everything that working with you guys really changed my career choice. So I'm like, so those that's the stuff I'm the most proud of because I'm one person, like you said, right? And I can do what I can do. But if we can multiply our passion and our energy and our drive into a bunch of other people, then it's exponential. Who knows what we can do? And that's what I'm the most excited about with with Willeen being in Canada and us writing these books is that well, for sure, one, one if not two, are going to end up on the big screen. We've had directors from Hollywood. We had a team shooting before COVID in DR. That'll resume. I can't tell you what streaming service is going to be on yeah. because I'm not supposed to. But it might start with an N. It might not. I'm not sure. <laughs> a big red logo possibly would look cool. You know, um, I didn't say it. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, they were filming, like this was moving forward mm. and COVID hit. So we had stopped. So once, once cross-border travel becomes a little easier, we'll resume. So 
books, movies, documentaries, however it all plays out. It's cool and it's exciting because I want the story to be one of my motivators. It's kind of bad. I want to stick it to those dicks up in Ottawa. I do. I really want to stick it to them. Brother, I don't blame you. And I want to stick it to the ones in Dominican Republic who wrote the legislation in the first place. They both need to be exposed. That aside, the real motivation, uh, not just my selfish one, but the real, the big one is look at how many people can see Woodleen's story, can be inspired and say, I think I might go change the world and, and do it and actually do it. And I believe we're going to, we might, we might actually be able to see social change come from Woodleen's story, from people that see that story, read it, hear it, see it on the news, whatever, and go, it's time we put our foot down. Maybe they'll run for a position, you know, an elected official. Maybe they'll be the ones making the decisions. We'll see. And that's what excites me the most. Man. Well, Vaden, that's a great, great way to, to end it here. Uh, I want to thank you so much, bro, for, for being uh, so open and, and sharing your story. Um, where can people find you? Where can people find the books that are, that are out and coming out uh, and stay connected with you? Um, I, I've got all these weird handles on social media. <laughs> Vaden Earl. That's it. That's it. All right. <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all just my name. That's okay. it. Vaden Earl. Um, the, the book that you've got here, it's sold out almost everywhere. I got to, we got to get Amazon to stock up more. Yeah. It, it's literally every time it goes up, it sells out. Um, it, it did really well. Um, the new ones are going to be knock on wood. We had a meeting today and it looks, I, I think I can safely say that they're going to be available everywhere. Amazing. You're not going to be able to go. To, I, I believe you're not going to be able to go to an airport or pass a Barnes and Noble or a Chapters or an Indigo and not see that on the main display. Uh, I, I believe that we've got the 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 people, the people that are doing the documentary and the, the motion picture stuff on this. To say they're the best is not an understatement. People know their names, like Man, I, you know. know. So that's that's the quality of people that are involved in the project. Um, and you know, you know, when the campaign was going, Richard Branson was tweeting about it. Ellen, the, the producer yeah. of the Ellen DeGeneres show was tweeting about it. We had pro athletes tweeting about it. We got Stanley Cup winners holding the Stanley Cup in one hand and a bring with lean home sign in the other. Wow. Like, so it went big. So yeah. when the books come out, I'm going to go back to all those people of and course. say, Hey, can you push this one more time? You know, one more time, maybe, maybe just write another blog, you know, like, and, and we want to get it out there. We want to get it into the millions of people because Woodley's story is very inspiring. We had a Nobel peace prize winner. We went to the UN general assembly in 2019. We were invited there by this keynote speaker who won a Nobel peace prize. And he's on record saying this dude did, he's like the man. And uh, he said, Woodley's story is so inspiring to me. I'm like, to you, dude, nobody could, you're like the, the top of the inspiration pyramid, right? you know, but it is, it is inspiring that a kid so young stuck it out, stuck it out. And now she's living her dreams. She's starting a bikini company. She's an entrepreneur. Like she's doing stuff she wants to do as a normal kid. So yeah. she had a driver's license, that kind of, so all to answer your question, Vaden Earl, Google me, all it all comes up. The the social media stuff's all there, and I do respond. So if someone goes on and says, "Hey, I, I heard about you on this podcast, or I saw this thing," I do respond, and there will be links everywhere for the books. Amazing, everywhere, well, Vaden, brother, dude. Thank, thank you, you so for having much, me. Man. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate it as well. And uh, everybody for listening, appreciate you guys coming in and listening once again. And we're going to be uh, back next week, same time. Stay safe, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.